Free Talk Live. We are coming to you live from our studios here in Keene, New Hampshire. It is Mark with you. Derek. And Jay. Derek, welcome to the show. We, uh, you're, you're sitting in for Angie tonight. Angie's actually here in town. It's just that you are visiting. And tell people who, who you are. Uh, Derek Slopey. Um, been around a little while. Yep. Well, you uh, the epic story. You run Agorist Hosting. You help yep. with Bitcoin Not Bombs. Yep. Uh, Phoenix. You pretty much make uh, Ernie's show occur <laughs> to some extent or another. More on the website. Yep. Yep. There you go. So thanks for sitting in with us. Thanks. And Jay, um, I, it's my understanding you had some adventures. Was it today or yesterday? Uh, Monday. Monday. Okay. Actually, Derek and I took the adventure together. How'd that go? Actually, it went uh, seemingly well. I was kind of impressed with the attitude of the uh, tax collector. Well, so, give me give me the rundown. What occurred? Well, so I have been talking about how when I pay the taxes on the land, I you know the home I bought, you know almost a year ago, uh, that I want to voice you know how I feel to the actual tax bureaucrat to the tax collector. So I drafted up a letter and I called it an objection to extortion and i wrote it to the actual tax collector and then i well, read let's make our case here on extortion first so um uh, you know like a lot of people will hate the notion that taxes are theft um and uh, i think extortion um probably describes that form of theft a little bit better uh let's see it says the practice of obtaining something especially money through force or threats. All right. So when you get a tax bill, I think you can presume relatively easily that if you don't pay it, you will uh, have your house taken from you at some point. The question is, would you otherwise pay it? Would you otherwise pay it if it wasn't for the the force or the threat? For the threat, would you pay it? I think that uh, most people would probably not pay it. Um, but I think it's also relevant to say whether you consented to it or not, right? Like, so a company could, for whatever reason, like let, let's let's say a company builds your house for you, and they say you're going to pay us in easy monthly installments for the next thirty years, and if you don't pay us in those easy monthly installments over the course of thirty, you know, at some point in the thirty years, we take the house back. Right. That's not theft. That would not be theft because you signed some sort of contract consenting to that. Right. Whereas with property taxes. It's kind of a different situation, right? Um, you you go there. You're, you, I mean, I think people probably mostly know that they're going to have property taxes to pay. I will say that there was a point in my life when I thought that if you paid the house off, that you could get a, a lodial title to it and opt out of property taxes. That doesn't make me right on that point. It does, however, make me ignorant in entering into the, uh, the the situation with the tax bureaucrats. Somebody could say, well, that's a dumb thing to think. That might be true. But that doesn't mean that they can steal my house from me. I mean, and, and that being said, I, I expect a tax bureaucrat to help me get my property off the tax rolls because I believe that it is her duty as, a gover- as, as an agent of the government to serve the people. And I think that there's got to be a remedy. There's something, obviously, I don't know yet because I haven't figured it out, but... You know, I expect their help with it, and I'm going to keep on asking them for help because, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's their job. Well, um, I I hope they give you that help is what I hope. <laughs> um, yeah. So going on, I think that basically 
it's pretty clear it's extortion. Let's not forget that the government can, or the you know, the, the people in the government, uh, you know, some small section of the uh, the segment of the people in town, wherever which town, every town or city you live in, determine just how much they want to raise or lower taxes, and you've got to live with it. End of story. There is no other option. They did. De- they determine that amount. Now, this is the social contract that somehow or another we're bound to, even though we don't know anything about it, is that you make no rules, we make rules, you follow the rules, you abide by the rules, you obey the rules, and if you do not, remember, you consented to the rules. But the contractor that built your house who you owe money to doesn't turn around and say two years later, oh, well, we're going to double that. And you have no input into it, right? If yeah. you uh, had a house builder that uh, you know built you a house for a thousand dollars or whatever the amount that I had previously said every month for thirty years, um, yeah, I mean, there's no, there's really no consent here, ladies and gentlemen. There's nothing that even looks like consent here. So this conversation with the uh, the, the tax collector in your town, can you give me some kind of uh, idea of what occurred? I'll just read it to you if you like. Sure, so I'd love to hear it. We walked in there. Uh, her name's Kim Johnson. All right, Kim. And uh, I said, hey, Kim, uh, I'm here to reluctantly pay these tax property taxes. She's like, oh, I had to pay my taxes, too. I, I know how you feel. She probably chuckled because uh, and I, I believe that Kim does know what it's like. I believe Kim has to pay those property taxes. And I believe she doesn't like it. But, you know, um, on top of that, you know, to add to that, she, she sort of gets she gets a paycheck to kind of put these numbers in rows and add things up and make sure the checks get deposited and all that stuff. I'm, I don't consider her to be the enemy in these circumstances, but she's working for the enemy, whoever the hell the enemy is. And well, and the thing is, is she doesn't feel what she's doing is wrong or bad. This is just kind of like, you know, this is the way it's always been. My mom did this. My dad, everybody just paid taxes. Yep. It's just what you do. And, and they uh, just keep going up. What I wanted to explain in writing, because so many people complain about paying property tax. Everybody yep. I know who owns land. I go, do you ever tell the tax bureaucrat? Oh, no. No, I don't, I don't say anything to them about that. I, when you mail them a check, do you give them a letter? Letting them know that this is extortion and what they're what they're doing is you know literally extortion. Oh no no no! So I said, hey, uh, can I record you? And she's like, yeah, it'll be okay. I just I just don't don't want my face on YouTube. She said, and uh, oh, first she said, what you don't believe that the money won't go there? I go, actually, I I have no um, uh, disbelief in you and you doing your job. It's just governments in general. Uh, you know, I don't trust them. And I ha- and I and I also got a letter for you. I want to read you. And I, I did. I gave her a public records request. Also, I think it's worth pointing out that it doesn't matter where the you know if the, that the money goes to where they say it goes. I don't doubt for a second that these people put the money to where it uh, is uh, you know supposed to go. It's just that once you let go of the responsibility of your own money, then the next person doesn't take very much responsibility. If you're buying something. For you, with your money, you're going to have the highest level of responsibility for your money. If you're buying something for someone else with your money, well, you know, you're probably unlikely to get exactly what they want, but you're buying a gift and so, you know, you're, you're getting this done, right? This is a task you've got to do. You're going to get it done. If you're buying something for yourself with somebody else's money, you're liable to buy something that's a little nicer than what you would buy for your own, but it's a gift and you're going to do that. This is what, you know, grandma gave me $500 or $100 or $50 or whatever, and I'm going to buy this thing because this is what grandma would want me to do. 
Now, if you're buying something with someone else's money for someone else, this is the lowest level of accountability when it comes to money. There's just no way to describe how unaccountable the people who put together the schools, the police departments, or anything like that in towns. And those are two big uh, you know, sinks as far as money goes. I don't think police departments come even close to uh, the schools. But regardless, let's talk about school for a second. Uh, I mean, you know, not to say the kids don't need education, but do they need how much is spent on them? Because in many cases, private schools in a given town or given region are less than the amount spent per student. Well, on the tax bill I got, literally, well, the total mill rate is 33. Okay. So it's 33. 3.3% of the house paid every year. Basically, 33, $33 in every 1,000. Yep. And like 20.08% of that, I believe, is a school. It's like about almost two thirds. Yeah. Not quite. And uh, I know, and so they say in, in, in the town I live in that, uh, or the school district that covers that area, it costs about $20,000 a student to send them to school. Yeah. It's actually, I think, the highest in New Hampshire. And that's hard to find, even even in New Hampshire, where there's all kinds of preparatory schools and sleepover schools and things like that. It's hard to find a private school that costs $20,000 a year. Yeah. Somebody was saying that there's real good private schools for about 6500 Right, local to where I am. Yeah, but you don't have any kids right now, Jay. So you're not you're paying for somebody else's kids, right? And there's nothing on there that says where that money is going. It says schools, but if you've got a bill from a contractor, they would say what that's for. Yeah, a lot of it is going to pensions and have materials. Eight fifty five four fifty free here on Free Talk Live with the uh, tax collecting bureaucrat uh, in your town. Before we go on, I want to tell folks about how if they have a business, they can begin accepting. Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies at their business. You got to help me take Bitcoin.com. If you got a retail business and you're looking for a solution for point of sale cryptocurrency acceptance, it's never been easier. Thanks to help me take Bitcoin.com. There's no paperwork or approval process to open an account. No paperwork, no approval process. It takes moments. If you already have a tablet at your cash register, you're almost done. Just visit HelpMeTakeBitcoin.com and follow the simple steps. Within moments, you'll be accepting cryptocurrency like Bitcoin and Dash at your store. We uh, Get started now at HelpMeTakeBitcoin.com. Bitcoin Cash, too, by the way. I usually use that one. HelpMeTakeBitcoin.com. And... Jay, you're, uh, uh, yeah, so you were filming the tax collector lady. Yep. And she seemed amiable to the whole situation. Yeah, I read her a letter. But you have a letter that uh, you read to her. What's What would that say? Okay. Well, I got it right here. It says uh, uh, extortion. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Objection to extortion. Yep. I, Joseph Noon, a spirit-filled man, object to the extortion of real estate tax. So what does spirit field mean? That's caught my attention. Okay, well, uh, I'm not a person because a person is defined in law as a uh, All right. as a corporation, a trust, or other legal entity. All right, so I get I get what that could be. And All then right. there is uh, some stuff that goes back to the Vatican. I think it's uh, Pope U- uh, oh, Pope uh, Uquinas uh, Unum Sanctum. Well, and, the, good, the good news is, is I don't know the name of any popes. Yeah, I, <laughs> and, and I might have said it wrong. I might have butchered that a little bit. John but Paul? I've done some heavy-duty uh, research, like pretty much my entire adult life on freedom. You have. How to try, how, how to try freedom, how to figure out where, why we're still chained chain down, bond down, yeah, still slaves, what those chains are that 
you know, of bondage are that make us slaves still, why we don't have rights when we go into courtrooms and blah, blah, blah. And I just, I've been working on this forever. So there's a, uh, a passage some guys came across from this Pope Aquinas, Unum Sanctum, which means like one statement or something like that, or one sacred thing. Okay. And it, it says something like, uh, the church shall have dominion over the human creature, but no man shall have shall rule over the spirit-filled man. Okay. And the idea is that we're I'm a spirit-filled man. I'm not a person. I don't even like the term human being because the 1828 Webster's Dictionary actually defines a human being as a monster that was formerly a man. And if you get into English common law, you know, the, 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 the drunkards, the beasts of burden are to be regulated by the governments, essentially. Okay. Because, and, and you know, the, and also human beings is like wrapped up in there, too, because it's, you know, fits one of these like, you know, unfit men or men that are monsters that were, were men or even beasts of burden. So it's words, all crazy stuff. Yeah. So, so the premise is words are important. Uh, the Correct. government, uh, the, that the people in the government claim that words are what give them power, right? Well, like According to their statutory construction manuals anyways, you know, words mean only certain things within their laws. We have people who are listening right now who will say things like, well, if it's the law, then follow it until you can change it, suggesting that the words have uh, in and of themselves are important. And I suggest now, that the, these laws don't include me. They don't apply to me. They're not even laws, first off. They're statutes. Second, they're, well, they're codes, and they're not law. I mean, law is, as far as I'm concerned, the only law really is, is you know, don't kill, don't steal, uh, don't injure somebody, you know, but, simple stuff like that. So the Bible uses the term spirit-filled man or some religious documents or whatever. These yeah. governments claim their power, in many cases, from, uh, you is, know— Is over the person. Right. And it's, actually, the law— Well, so, well they, is, they claim their power comes from the religious institutions or, well, you know, God or whomever, and then— They claim it comes from consent. Well, they, they'll claim that too, but that one is demonstrably false, right? You know, if if somehow I gave consent, I withdraw it right now. Right, but how many people actually did you go tell the government bureaucrats that you withdraw consent? I've told multiple of them. Did you do it it's in writing? Like, no. Did you, did no, you put they, it on a record? No, they they never. T- no, I have not taken the time to do that because it seems like to me a waste of time. So but I, I did I'm do that. curious. What happens when you do do it? Right. So I did do that in 2013. Yep. I claimed my DNA. I, How'd I, you do that? I just, I wrote a paramount just claim of DNA. on a letter? <laughs> uh, it was actually this guy, Curtis Richard Kallenbach. His website is curtisrichardkallenbach.xyz. Just start typing it into Google. It'll pop up. And uh, he, he, he talks about, well, you got to let the state know. The, the presumption is, is that you're exercising the intellectual property of the state as far as he's concerned. Okay. Which is his name in all capital letters, along with the date of birth. The date of birth is very, very um, important with all of this. And it's that, one of the five things that really identifies you as a human being. So or as a, uh, you know, entity, right? Yeah, as an entity, as so a legal fiction. There's your face, right? Like people are like, I recognize your face. I don't remember that your name. That would be a biological identifier. There's your name. Name and date of birth are legal identifiers. Date of birth, social security number. And like fingerprints. I mean, there's some, you know, there's yep. there's some things out there that are undeniably sort of you as far as the government's concerned. And date of birth is one of those ways that they do it. So, you know, if there's two John A. Smiths, 
standing before you, one of the ways to determine which John A. Smith is the one you're dealing with is to ask them, all right, I got a John A. Smith pulled up in my computer here, and both of you guys want the million dollars I'm going to hand out to the winning John A. Smith. Uh, which one of you was born on January the 1st, 1970? And, uh, or whatever. I don't suppose you'd tell them. You'd ask both of them their, their birthdays because one of them may have sure. them wrong. But whatever. And of course, I never, in my case, I'd be screwed because I always give a wrong, a fake uh, birthday. So there's like three birthdays that oh, could potentially be that's mine. That's fraud. <laughs> Why? Well, I was told that I had to give a date of birth to, to a whom, judge though? once. By a judge. How okay, you to know a judge. Your date of birth is? I have no direct evidence of my date of birth. I'm reciting something from memory that would be a crime if I recited it incorrectly. It's really not a good idea to even give it up. Right, and, and that's the route I went. This was like 15 years ago. I was in court. I was like 19 years old, and my dad's like, well... He had me good and prime for this, and they want the date of birth. And we're just trying this because we're, we're experimenting with stuff. So it was like one of these driving without a license charges. And I was like, what's your date of birth? I'm like, oh, I don't know. And if I answer that question, would I be committing perjury if it was not correct? And they said, yes. This is, well. I have no direct knowledge. <laughs> I says, based on the evidence and, and the testimony given to me by the people who have told me about this alleged date of birth, uh, is there they're compulsive liars. So I, I the judge is like, what do you mean they're compulsive liars? I go, well, they told me about this Santa Claus and I had believed in Santa Claus for years. I had believed in the Easter bunny for years. I had believed in a tooth fairy and it all turned out to be false. So based on those incidents right there, right. I can't in good faith utter anything these people have to tell me under penalties of pain, pain and perjury. Right. I mean, and, the days that I get gifts are clearly a bunch of lies. So why would I believe this whole date of birth thing? And it, all, and it got thrown out of court. Who benefits? <laughs> the state benefits. <laughs> the number 855-450-3733. 855-450-FREE here on Free Talk Live. Bitcoin.com has launched a trading platform at local.bitcoin.com, allowing you to buy or sell Bitcoin cash via dozens of payment methods like PayPal, Venmo, bank deposit, remittances, or meeting in person with cash. There are no ID requirements to sign up for and use the site, and all communications between buyers and sellers are encrypted. Finally, a global trading platform that respects your privacy. Visit local.bitcoin.com to get started trading Bitcoin cash. Local.bitcoin.com. Free Talk Live. Call in. You can comment about Jay and his adventures at the tax collector's office here this week. And um, or anything else. That's what we do here on Free Talk Live. The number is 855-450-3733. It's 855-450-FREE, as in freedom. It's Mark with you. Derek. And Jay. Derek, thanks for joining us. Uh, Real quick, I want to tell you about Liberty Stickers. If you want to reach people with the ideas of liberty, you can do it from the back of your car with libertystickers.com. You can reach thousands of people with a bumper sticker, and you know people love to, to read them. You've seen them inching up. You've done it yourself at, uh, at a stoplight. You can check out the vast selection of witty, poignant, pithy, and downright bombastic liberty-oriented messages at libertystickers.com. Sometimes I like to go there and just scroll through them because they're great. There's it's, some pretty good ones. Yeah, libertystickers.com. So, Jay, you were at the tax collector's office, and I guess you read her um, this letter that you'd, you'd written her. I'll, I'll let you go through and get the, the early part here. And some of this has, uh, you know, some of your, uh, you know, beliefs that 
there's certain words that are important to these bureaucrats, and uh, you know, well, they're I don't know if they are. They're important to me. Okay, great. And you know, and, uh, and my goal here is to build evidence. Uh huh. To put evidence on the record, and uh, and this is also what I did to public records requests, or why I did the public records requests also. And I want to get all my evidence for months and months and months before I even make a claim or a statement like, hey, uh, yeah, I'm going to sue you for all this money that you've I've given you under threat, duress, and coercion, um, you know, for the past whatever years. Right. And I want it all back times three. And I don't think that there's any doubt that most people are paying taxes under threat. Uh, what, what was it? Threat what? Threat, coercion. duress, and coercion threat. against my will and over my objection. Yeah, well, you know, that's how I'm generally paying them. Now, I don't, haven't done, I haven't gone so far as what you've done, which is to let them know. I figure they already know. But um, I, I don't think they do know. All right. Well, perhaps they need a letter. <laughs> and, and, and the letter needs to be on the record. I mean, what happens when a, when a tax collector starts collecting, you know, letters where people are claiming they're doing this out of threat, duress, and coercion? Probably nothing. I mean, it, it's and they're all getting put on the record. And I, well, you you are right. Maybe nothing. But people whine and complain about this all the time, but just never even utter a word in, you know, of displeasure about paying taxes. The government does seem to be very concerned with whether or not you've signed a given thing under duress. And um, that inclu- that should include the check with which you pay your property taxes, I think. Oh, they, they, they go crazy. Like, if you're ever in court and they want you to sign something... You just start writing under threat, duress, and coercion after your signature, and it'll rip it right out of your hands. <laughs> and I've had, they, oh, we can't take it like that. You know, you need to sign it without, you know, putting this explicit statement. I mean, yep, and must. I've had a lot of courtroom experience with doing this because I don't ever sign anything unless I absolutely have to. There's, there's a lot of debate people have about whether, you know, taxation is theft or not. It has all the characteristics of theft if you analyze it logically, but people will still say, ultimately, well, it's because they need the money. And people that mug you in the subway may probably be doing need the money because they're doing it because they need the money. They have to feed their families right. or whatever. That's still theft. Need the state's need, poor people's need, whatever need that you might be describing isn't a factor in whether or not something is theft. Whether I need something as much as the next person may need it isn't a factor in theft. It may be a factor in whether I decide to give it to them if they ask me for it. There are people who have asked me for stuff, and I've given it to them. There are people who have asked me for stuff, and I've not given it to them. And I make my decisions based on, you know, a bunch of different factors. And I'm happy to help, but I'm not going to help everybody. You Coming up and asking isn't necessarily going to get me uh, get, get my help. If the, mugger, if the mugger comes up to you and says, you know, give me your money or I'm going to take it from you, and you give it to him, you've still been robbed. Yes, absolutely. It doesn't matter whether or not it, if, if the if – the, a uh, robber gives you a piece of paper that says, sign this or I'm going to shoot you. That's still robbery. <laughs> right. I mean, one of the first elements I've ever learned of one of the first elements of law that I can remember being learned is silence is consent. And so my father was always very like much about like, if you don't want to do this, you need to say so. Don't just do it and then be angry at whoever asked you to do it, you know, because because maybe somebody, maybe uh, you don't want to clean all 10 stalls today. You only feel like cleaning a couple of them or something. Tell somebody, and then there's going to be a renegotiation of your stall cleaning wage. And like I was, because I was like eight years old cleaning my neighbor's stalls, and I'm like, oh, I, just, I don't want to do all those stalls, you know, because 
We'd only clean them once a week, and it took me all day when I was a little kid, you know? Sure. My dad paid me a dollar a stall. They paid me a dollar a stall, but those stalls took like 10 times longer to clean. So he's like, well, you got to tell the guy. Why don't you tell him? <laughs> you know, and I just didn't want to like tell the guy no, you sure, know? Sure, sure. And so it was That's a little, an important factor to learn as a kid. Uh, so I was like, you know, I needed to get seven bucks a stall because I only got to clean one day a week. <laughs> so, you know, Let's we get that. back to that yeah. letter, see if we can get some of it read. <laughs> I, Joseph Noon, a spirit-filled man, object to the extortion of real estate tax. I do not consent to the real estate tax scheme. I am paying this extortion under threat, duress, and coercion against my will and over my objection. I am very aware that if I do not pay the extortion, real estate tax, that men with badges and instruments of death and torture will come to my home and force me off my land. I do not consent to be governed by the state of New Hampshire, the town of my town, or any other entity. I do not give permission to the town of my town, my town town of, <laughs> my is, town tax collector. <laughs> you're, you're, edit, you're editing here in order to uh, not give up uh, the name of your town, right? Right. That's good. Town of my town, office of tax collector, state of New Hampshire, or any other entity to convert the value of my property into any form of financial instrument or to use my property in any, any form to prop up the bond rating of any entity or to put an assessed validation on my property. What is this bond rating? So, and when I live, when I kind of lived in Winchester, New Hampshire about 10 years ago, and I say kind of, I used an address there because uh, I couldn't get a Massachusetts driver's license when I was a kid. Uh, so it's been 20 years ago, actually. And uh, I had a really nice conversation with a tax collector about registering a car and the reason that you 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 paid and on a car they have what's called right on the registration an assessed value or and the word might not be assessed but something value so i asked her you know what was the relevance of this and we just had a conversation and she says well this is what the, the town uses the value of your car to prop up the bond rating and then state uses the the weight of your car to um, determine basically how much damage your car is going to do to the roads. Okay. So, so if you have a, a Peterbilt truck that weighs 80,000 pounds, it costs a couple thousand dollars a year for registration, or your Honda Civic costs a 50 or 60 or a few hundred. That makes a lot more sense than what they do here in New Hampshire, which well, is... Well, this is New Hampshire. This is Winchester, New Hampshire. I had a converse, well, conversation. What they do is they base it on the sort of the newness, the value of the car. Right. So... That's the town side. If you buy a Lamborghini mm-hmm. or, um, you know, let, let's use a Rolls Royce because a Rolls Royce isn't generally going much faster than any other car. Lamborghini has the ability to go faster. So we'll use a Rolls Royce. I don't know. What's it cost? A quarter million dollars? Somebody's screaming at their uh, radio right now. It's Three hundred fifty thousand. I have no idea. I've never bought a Rolls Royce. I'm not. I've never even been in the market to buy a Rolls Royce. But what is the Rolls Royce doing that's any different than any full size car? Um, I'm it's thinking it's going to be do, doing less damage than most tru- most heavy trucks probably. And certainly it's cost more. You're going to pay more for tax. So you pay two taxes when you register a car. You pay a town tax in New Hampshire and a yep. state tax. The yep. state tax is based on a weight. Okay. The town tax is based on the assessed valuation of the car. I see. The town uses that part. To prop up their bond rating is what the lady told me in, okay. in um, Winchester, New Hampshire, twenty years ago. So this bond rating is used how? Is used well. I can speak to this a little bit. It's it's essentially the uh, the property taxes are income to the town, and if uh, just like if you're a company and you have um you have uh you have income and maybe you have some past due collections. If you have a lot of past due collections, your your rating 
your ability to borrow money is going to be going to go down, be lower, right? And towns are the same way. If if there's a lot of so they're trying to show we taxes. have assets. Yeah, this is how this is what our income is. The number eight five five four five zero three seven three three. It's eight fifty five four fifty free, as in Free Talk Live, or you can use the Discord lines. I didn't even talk to you about those yet, but go to discord.freetalklive.com to check those out. Eight fifty five four fifty free, as in Free Talk Live. It's Free Talk Live, and you are free to call in and talk live here on the airwaves. That's what we do here. It's Mark with you. Derek. And Jay. The number, 855-450-3733. It's 855-450-FREE, as in freedom. I want to tell you about the amplifier program, and I want to thank T. Hammond. T. Hammond is a gold amplifier, and you can find the different ratings for amplifiers at amp.freetalklive.com we ask well i ask anybody who's listened to free talk live more than say six months and believes in the ideas of liberty i'm sure there's somebody who's been listening for a very long time who doesn't believe in the ideas of liberty or at least most of them and i guess i'll continue to give you a pass because you haven't figured it out yet but whatever Um, but if you believe in the ideas and you listen for that period of time and you've got a job i'm asking for five dollars a month and that five dollars will allow us to reach more people with these ideas that's why i believe that the believing the ideas is important because if you don't believe in them why would you want somebody to reach people with these ideas i suppose it could be that uh, free talk live is very good at giving free speech to people who otherwise wouldn't have it but either way you go to amp.freetalklive.com and sign up there, just like T. Hammond did. Thank you, T. Hammond, and thank you to anybody who goes and signs up today at amp.freetalklive.com. Jay, we're reading this letter of yours to the town tax collector um, that you uh, read on Monday. Yep. Live. And, uh, yeah, just pick up where you left off. Well, just one more thing about the bond part. So there's a guy, he calls himself Steve Emerson, which is like a, I think it's like a radio name or a pen name. These are bonds that towns and cities Correct. kind of make. I mean, if you go on YouTube and Google Bo and Rocco property tax, there's these guys, uh, Bo and Rocco show, they do like a podcast. I don't really know if they do it much anymore. And Rocco Vanzetti or something is his name. He's actually from Colorado and I forget where Bo's from, but they would do this podcast years ago. And they would do a lot of liberty type things. And this guy, Steve, uh, does a whole like it's like 15 different YouTube videos is one of them or or one of them is like, you know, an hour long YouTube video. And it's just the audio. And a guy explains pretty good in Florida how they're actually doing a conversion to your land by putting an assessment on it. What's conversion to my land? They're doing a conversion to it. They're converting the value of your property into a financial instrument so the town can use it to leverage uh it's bond rating, essentially. It's pretty clear that that's the case. I mean, a town is an entity that basically functions like a lord from med- medieval times. Yep. They have land, and you will pay that amount for that land. It doesn't matter whether you're running, um, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're running a business on it, whether you're running, uh, doing personal stuff, whatever you're doing, if you want to keep the use of that land, you're going to have to pay the property taxes. Sure. But the idea of the town doing this uh, financial conversion to your land is actually some form of financial fraud. And conversion is some form of fraud, and this falls under conversion, and it falls under a few other things. And this is actually something I started learning about 
about two, two, three years going, studying a little bit about it. And as soon as I get my house like in order, uh, physically, I could finish putting a roof on it and stuff. Uh, this is something I'm going to start diving back into and uh, studying because I really want to fight them based on only things that I can, you know, facts I can only prove. That, okay. You know, otherwise, any, any, you know, sovereign citizen theory or any of that stuff just doesn't work. You know, it needs to be solid things. You had your house and, taken from you in Palmer, Massachusetts. That's correct, because uh, I didn't pay the property tax. Right. So, and, and that's another reason, If you know, I know very well that men with guns will come and kick me out. You, I think it's also, know. whenever you say you didn't pay the property tax, it's probably also worth pointing out that you worked for the fire department in that town, and the amount that they pay firemen in that town is more annually than the property tax was. So you more or less just didn't move money from one column to another you refuse to allow them to pay you the firefighter uh paycheck and so that statement's not a hundred percent accurate help me with it then so when i first joined the fire department um i wasn't even living in that house that particular house i was still living at home with my parents okay and but when i first bought the house the first year's taxes were actually cheaper or less money than what the fire department uh salary would be for a call a firefighter okay uh the very last year the whatever the property taxes were was a few hundred dollars more than the call sal- call pay for the firefighter the firefighter salary didn't go up any in those several years i owned it but the property tax went up oh so the difference is mitigable. Went up. went up it's pretty it's at, in that time frame it's actually about an even wash uh, but I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to be on a fire department to help out. I mean, I, I consider that like a separate issue. I don't really care, you know, the titles together. But that is a good point that you do make. And I, and well, I there's a lot of people out there that think that. you deserve to lose your house if you don't pay property taxes. But it's really important for those people to understand. You know what I say to those people? I say, oh, you think I deserve to lose my house because I didn't pay property taxes? I said, would you come to my house and put a gun to my face and demand I pay the property tax? And if they say, no, I wouldn't, then I would say you're a coward if you won't stand behind your beliefs. Because that's what a cop will do, right. ultimately. Well, and but the, you're a coward if you'll go send bureaucrats, bureaucrats to put a gun to your face. Just like these people who are like, oh, we need to go, you know, kill those brown people over in the Middle East. I said, would you go do that? Would you go shoot them? And some of them say no. I said, well, you're a coward then if you feel that this war is necessary because you're okay with other people going over there and killing them, but you won't go do it yourself. Well, you've got. As far as I'm concerned, you need to stand up for your beliefs. You're right. Right. So, on with the letter. I want to make it very clear to you and your office that taxation is slavery. At the current extortion rate of three thousand one hundred ninety-seven dollars biannual, a minimum wage worker would have to work over eight hundred and fifty hours a year just to comply with this real estate real estate tax scheme. I demand that my property be removed from the tax rolls. Notwithstanding the above, I look forward to working with you in your office to restore private property rights so we can figure out how to actually own our homes, not rent them from the state. That's pretty much what's happening. And that's the end of the letter. If you're paying a property tax, and what in the, in the case of your town, it's biannual, right? Yep. In the case of uh, my town, it's biannual in a lot of places. Sometimes it's annual. Sometimes it's quarterly. It doesn't really matter the duration if you're paying an amount in order to use a piece of land or a building or something like that, yeah, it's not yours. Functionally, <laughs> what's the difference between that and rent? 
I mean, well, they don't come and fix it for you when the roof starts leaking. Yeah, right? but you're right. <laughs> yeah, so it's worse than rent. It's worse than rent. It's just a, it's a fee to be left alone. It's a, it's protection money. Hey, why don't you pay this and then we'll not uh, give you any trouble? How's that? Yeah, your 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 shop won't have broken windows anymore if you pay us. You know. Yeah, that's, that's all it is. Basically, what it comes down to when it comes down to property tax, and. You know, I mean, I understand how people feel when they're like, well, we need to do this. So we need what about the roads is always the uh, the argument. Who's going to pick up the trash? Who picks up the trash in your town? Well, I, I have a dumpster that I pay for. Oh, in fact, that's one of the things that I'm going to do in my town is I'm going to actually uh, put some articles forth, like getting rid of the town dump because transfer station or dump transfer station. Yep. And I'm going to suggest that the people who work in that transportation they've all been working there forever they they all got these you know are going to end up with crazy pensions that um i'm going to be forced to pay for so i think there should be a vote to get rid of the town dump and that the actual town dump and all of its assets get turned over to the people who work there and make them shareholders in that town dump somehow kind of like your school idea uh i think it would be a really good thing to try with a thing like the landfill. I think that the... I mean, the, the transfer station. The transfer station. I think it's the biggest problem with that uh, is that, you know, some people, when forced to pay to throw their garbage away, will find some place to throw it and not do it the, the sort of the right way. And I don't have a good solution, Jay. I really don't. But some people are going to be like, I've got to pay $20 a month to use this, or I've got to pay $5 a, you know, a dump. <laughs> they're paying a lot right now to use it because well, they're forced that, to. That bill's like, you know, that's a few hundred bucks of everybody's tax right there. Agreed, 100%. Uh, and, but the thing is, is that they're sort of forced to pay that. And uh, if they don't, then they get their house taken away from them. And that, I think, is, for me, when it comes to the transfer station, that's the single best argument for a town government is some of these people will not throw their garbage in the right place. I mean, I've, I found on my property, um, you know, a, a little a little dump that they'd been using years and years ago. Now the bottles are worth something. <laughs> but, and by the way, I don't advocate for this. I'm just saying, if, if the one thing we need government for is for transfer stations... Then my God, how far have we come? We're in great shape. But um, I, I just don't have a good solution in my mind. I haven't been able to come up with the best way to get somebody to be responsible for their garbage. They tend not to be responsible for their uh, garbage. I don't think that's the bulk of municipal expenses. Oh, no, by no means. No, but I figured it would be a good, a good minarchist experiment to just try it with the transfer station because sure. it is such a little part of it. I think that uh, turning it over to people is a is a great uh, to the people that work there is a great solution. I'd be curious as to how something like that would work, but I'll be willing to bet that somebody is going to dump their garbage someplace where they can't get found. Just a guess. What are your thoughts? 855-450-3733-855-450. Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem. You've seen me on the Netflix documentary Banking on Bitcoin and the new best-selling book Bitcoin Billionaires. I want to invite you to join me on my new show untold stories for a deep dive into crypto history with the people who made that history together we'll explore the personalities and events that gave rise to bitcoin and the crypto revolution the innovation the collaboration the battles and the busts you'll have a front row seat to the early days of crypto up to today and you'll hear from the folks who lived through it and survived to drive this movement mainstream 
Untold Stories looks back to reveal what inspired some of the greatest minds on Earth to come together to create this technology and change the future for everyone. So join me and my guests, the techies and the traders, the entrepreneurs and the innovators, as we explore our past and understand what that means for the future. Listen now on UntoldStories.com. That's UntoldStories.com. talk live you are free to call in and talk live here on the airwaves that's what we do here on free talk live that's why we've got the name free talk live so give us a call at 1-855-450-FREE that's 855-450-3733 it's mark with you derek and jay and yeah Coming to you live, if it's between 7 p.m. and 10 p.m. Eastern Time, chances are very, very good. The Free Talk Live is live. Now, recently, we were uh, just at Freedom Fest, so you probably, if you've been listening the last five days or so, you've heard some of those episodes. And they feel live because they're recorded, more or less. Were they all recorded this time? Yes, all the whole thing, as oh, far as okay. I know. Yeah, because I, I texted you a couple questions, and I thought, because it sounded like it was live, I was yeah. listening to them. and. Those are some of my favorite Free Talk Live episodes is when you're like at uh, Fork Fest and um, just Anarchapulco yep. uh, and when you're just interviewing all these interesting people uh, that I mean, those are definitely the best ones, I think. And I, I tend to go through and listen to those and download them like if I'm going to be working somewhere all day or driving or something like that. The fun, the fun part is, is that we're confronted by, you know, people that are we would not otherwise be speaking to people who wouldn't pick up the phone and call us at 855-450-3733 because so few people are going to do that. Maybe one out of a thousand listeners is ever going to pick up the phone and call and maybe one out of a hundred of them will call regularly. So, you know, that first call is unlikely. The, The second, third and fourth calls are even more unlikely. So when we are at some event, we're talking to people that we wouldn't otherwise be speaking to. And, you know, what's interesting, especially in my opinion in radio, is is when you get to uh, get a sort of a clash of ideas. And at no point is are people going to completely agree on ideas. Jay, you and I don't have the same ideas on everything. Nope. And that's fine. That's I think why we can have interesting conversations, too, because somebody who agrees with you on everything is kind of boring right. after a little while. After a little while. <laughs> it's it's really fun to find that radio program where somebody agrees with you, and then once you do, you're not going to listen for very long because all they're doing is telling you the things that you already know to be true. Why would you listen to that? You're not learning anything. Is All it's doing is validating you a little bit. Uh, so you've got to be able to learn something, and if you can't learn through... But, you know, one of the ways to learn is, is learning through conflict. So there you go. Jay, you've got a story uh, from ZeroHedge.com about the reserve status of the United States dollar or something. Well, you know, yes. So most of my life I've been, you know, anti-fiat money. I've always been very pro-sound money. And personally, I think the only sound money really is a blockchain, decentralized blockchain type of uh, money. Because there are a lot of people that would call blockchain um, and cryptocurrency a fiat currency. Now, a fiat currency is obviously est- uh, established by a government. 
And um, some people would say that the U.S. dollar is not backed by anything. Other people would say it's backed by, you know, the United States military or it's backed by the fact that the United States takes takes it for taxes or they they got a whole bunch, a whole spiel out there. Backed by faith and a threat of bombs and guns as far as I'm concerned. I think that, <laughs> I mean, you know, when it comes uh, when I think about what the United States dollar is backed by, to me, what it's backed by is the ability to pay in the future. And either they have the ability to pay in the future or they don't. And if they claim your labor, which they clearly do, then um, then they're going to claim the labor of your children. They're going to claim the labor of your grandchildren. They're claiming all of this stuff. And that's how they're able to continue their their debt cycle. We currently, United States government claims, has, has been claiming people's labor for so long that we are currently paying interest on debt from the from before the the civil war in the 18 it was i think the 1820s i really should look at the number and figure it out but somewhere during the jackson administration he had fought off the second national bank Uh, this is his second term um during his second term he managed to fight, fight off the second national bank destroy it and one year they paid off the debt in full or maybe down to forty thousand dollars but either way we'll call it in full so pretty much since then debt's been piling up and that's probably in the 1810s or the 1820s. So you can just go ahead and do the math. For 200 years now, uh, the United States debt has been piling up. So you're currently paying debts from people who are like your great, 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 great grandparents. And the things that they wanted, that they got. And those they, people probably didn't consent to the debt. They didn't, but no, I mean. Nobody alive today certainly did. So, well, yeah, there's, there, I guess there's some politicians that did. But it, when people advocate, somebody was advocating for a government program back then. And that person advocated for debt put upon you. And maybe you're fine with that. Like, I'm a full-grown adult. I can handle this debt or whatever it is that you feel like. But don't forget, at one point, you were a baby. And these people looked at that baby and they said, there's future revenue. And that takes a cold-hearted, disgusting individual. Because currently, what you're doing, my son's 11 years old. When he has a child, you're advocating that that child pay your debts because you're a stinking loser and you can't pay your own debts. You don't need the government to come out and and make claims on my grandchild. They're using that as an asset to say that say that you know we can pay this debt back because we have the ability to forcibly extract the money from your grandchild, right? right? But I don't know if we really can say that. Uh, the government can't borrow, that we have to consent for the government to borrow money. We're not getting the money. We're not a party to the money they're borrowing. Right. You know, but They've we never also asked me. be paying it, right? right? I mean, I don't have any, I it, mean, I, I can't control whether Microsoft borrows money or Amazon borrows money. Right. And the U.S. government is just some big corporation. That's all it is. Out there that can. It's a charity, actually. Let them, yeah. And and the thing is, too, when it comes to your the debt of your babies, don't don't register them with the state. That's where this is all created. It's in the birth registration process. Just don't do it. And you know, well, a lot of people are really afraid to do that. But I know, my kid doesn't have a social security number. You know, I I know. I actually personally know probably about oh twenty five or thirty. Some of them are twenty five years old right now that don't have birth documents. Some of them are five years old. Some of them are several months old. I mean, that's growing. And I I met babies in Colorado, Arizona, uh, here in New Hampshire, Massachusetts. Um, That doesn't even count the Amish. You know, a lot of the Amish aren't signing up for slavery. They're not registering their babies. They're having them at home and just 
you know, it's nobody's business. And it's what it all comes is creating this certificated person. Uh, that's Curtis Richard Kallenbach. Uh, his website, Curtis Richard Kallenbach XYZ, uh, really gets into this whole uh, certificated person stuff with the whole New Deal of 1933. And that's where they started essentially enslaving people. And that's where you're modern day birth certificates are derived from and all this stuff the 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 income tax came around in 1913 so the income tax existed that's a tax on people's future labor well income is defined as the profit or gain of a corporation and a certificated person also fits the definition of a corporation and a man or woman is functioning as a certificated person without even knowing they're functioning as a certificated person I it's not that it, like, I can't prove or disprove these right, theories. Right. What I Richard can say, Colin back really dives into this. He actually does these conference calls where he says, all right, guys, he sends out an email. These are the words that we're going to go over. Have your fifth edition blacks, uh, blacks, fifth edition law dictionary uh, marked off bookmarked to each one of these words. And these are the words we're going to study because we're going to study, you know, marriage licenses and what happens when you get a marriage license and what all these words on a marriage license from an Illinois marriage license, that's where he lives. So he just uses stuff from Illinois, but they're all very similar wording. Sure. And it's, it, it, it's amazing when you listen to these calls, he does them every Tuesday night. And, um, and I've been listening, I haven't listened to the guy much in the past, you know, a couple of years cause I've been, you know, occupied and stuff, but, uh, I still get his emails and read what's going on. It's pretty interesting. So um, I had a friend who died very recently, and uh, she and her live-in boyfriend were unmarried because, in part, they didn't believe in state marriages. Yep. And when she died, um, he couldn't say anything legally about the disposition of her remains. Now, fortunately, for whatever reason, her mother decided uh, her father's died um her mother decided to allow him to uh you know help with the arrangements but if she didn't want him to there would have been nothing he could have said and i mean i don't believe in state marriages either but i can say huh this is an issue that uh, probably isn't addressed very often the number 855-450-3733 it's 855-450 free as in free talk live i'd love to hear your comments on that 855-450 free Free Talk Live. Call in, talk about whatever is on your mind. I think this is our first live show in close to a week. Uh, we were Freedom Fest. Uh, we were at Freedom Fest. Uh, Free Talk Live was at Freedom Fest. Uh, yeah, because last Wednesday there was no live show, so this you're, that's correct. And we went to Freedom Fest then Anarcha Vegas, and it's basically been shows that were what we call live to tape is probably the best way to describe them. They they sound live if you're listening, but if you call in, we're not there. We're doing lots of interviews and things like that. As a matter of fact, one of the interviews we did with was with Ernest Hancock. Ernest Hancock runs Freedom's Phoenix. It's a liberty-oriented news aggregation site. If you want the newest and freshest stories and perspectives on current events from those who value liberty, freedomsphoenix.com has it. Their daily dispatch is the best way to stay up to date on science, technology, historical findings, liberty news, government overspending, and the rise of the police state. It's freedoms with an S, phoenix.com, freedomsphoenix.com. If you are like me and simply cannot spell Phoenix, no matter how many times you try, you can just use a search engine. It'll fill it in for you. O-E-N-I-X. Yeah, okay. I I don't know why I can't do it, but I just can't do it. At least I don't spell it with an F, right? Freedoms <laughs> Phoenix. 
Com. Guys, we were talking about uh, marriage certificates, uh, state marriage certificates here at the end of the last segment. And during the uh, the break, it was uh, a topic of conversation. And before we go on with the story about the United States dollar and its world reserve currency status, I just wanted to get uh, your thoughts. You didn't have any chances to uh, react to my point that, hey, a friend died recently. She wasn't married with a state marriage. Uh, she had a live-in boyfriend or whatever. And as a result, he, you know, they had no idea that she was going to die. She was 34 years old. Nobody expects a 34-year-old woman to die. And he had no way of determining uh, for sure how the arrangements would go and, you know, what the disposition would be. She hasn't really been in strong contact with her family for a couple of decades now. So her mother, a woman with whom she does not share a life, does not... Uh, hasn't been in that strong a communication with for a long time is the one who's going to determine fortunately she's being very reasonable about it but is the one who's going to determine what happens um, as a result now there's going to be memorial service nearby thank goodness everybody's going to go for the viewing and you know everything like that so it's going to be normal but if she wanted people get weird around death if she wanted the mother uh, to make this difficult she could yeah the the strange thing about marriage and marriage licenses to me is that do you have a marriage license with your wife? I do. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but that was, I wasn't really. What's your excuse? Well, I wasn't. I wasn't quite as awake at that time. Yeah. Well, my my excuse, if you want an excuse, is that I got a five thousand dollars surgery out of the deal. My wife was working for the state uh, of Florida at the time, and if all I had to do was sign the little piece of paper, and off we went. The, the you know my one form of protest was in the town in which uh, this uh, the county in which I was. Uh, uh, given a certificate, they wanted my race, and I just don't. I'm not comfortable with that whole stick and rigmarole around race, so I refuse to give it. How and would you know? how, with, would, how would you know what your race is? Yeah, I, well, how how can you answer that question in an operative fashion? Well, here's one: they actually had on the list of race business. Laura and I both claimed to be of the race business. On our marriage certificate, and that's how we got, uh, you know, our marriage certificate in, uh, well, I think, Sarasota County. I claim to be a Native American on a college application. You were born here, right? Well, I'm native to this uh, land they call America, so, I mean, I looked up the words in the dictionary, and I just came to the realization I fit that description, so, you know, that, I used it. Yep, yeah, there you go. It's uh, Nobody questioned it. I don't even think they looked at it, to be honest with you, but and that's just for their statistics, you know. So, um, you know, if somebody's uh, suggested that a living will might be useful in this circumstance, and it might be, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't claim one way or the other. Maybe you can avoid a marriage certificate with a living will. I don't know. I'm not an attorney. Yeah, or some other written contract. I mean, the, the marriage is the, the... It's a contract. Yeah, I mean, the, the, but the, it's the religion and the government getting together. I mean, there's, you know, they t- people talk about the division of government. Well, the government's government become the religion. And, uh, the government is a religion now. There are people that are so devout about this religion that is called the state that they will literally shoot you because you have a flag with a porcupine on it. And, and instead of the flag that says, don't tread on me, instead of a fl- flag with a rattlesnake, I have a good friend. He got shot because somebody worshipped the state so much and was so pissed off that the Gadsden flag didn't have the rattlesnake. It was molested and had a porcupine on it. Insane. And but there are people like that all the time. When I was at these truck pulls and I would not stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, oh man, did those people give me a hard time. I mean, like 
get in my face, big old boys. You know, it might hurt me. Um, and they would just like they they thought it was despicable that I didn't stand because I, you know, it it would be like not not praying for Allah in uh, or to Mecca in front of a whole bunch of you know um, extremist Muslims. It's yeah, I think like the same thing. There's a there's a pickup truck in my area that drives around, and they have a uh, they have two flags on the back of their pickup truck up there waving, you know, way above the cab. One is a Gadsden flag, the other is an American flag. Don't tread on me, and here's the people that are going to tread on you. Right, they're together. <laughs> yeah. Well, where I'm from in uh, Florida, you're j- just as likely to see a Confederate flag flying alongside a U.S. flag at the, at the back yeah. of a pickup truck, which I find to be fascinating yeah, just just give me a state i don't care which one and, right, it's, just, it's crazy you know like hey you know those governments fought right <laughs> you know, like, but and that's another thing that curtis richard Collenbeck gets into in a lot of his stuff is that the state is a religion and the first amendment cannot re- basically says that congress cannot interfere with your religion so if you are a, a, a willingly participating in a religion called the state of whatever then you're subject to it and you're subject to this jurisdiction. And if they, you know, uh, use extortion to get money from you, that's part of the religious activities of the state. And uh, so therefore Congress can't interfere with that. It's a first amendment protection. And, you know, it's just a, another theory that, you know, I've studied. Well, if you have uh, this, they'll certainly get involved if your church has something to do with marijuana. So <laughs> they don't mind that. Anyway, I think uh, I, I, Imagine for a second, Derek, uh, if you will, when I attend the Republican events here in Keene, New Hampshire. I'm a, I'm not just a registered Republican in uh, New Hampshire. I'm an office-holding Republican for three terms. I was a delegate to the state convention for the Republican Party. It's the lowest level that one can be elected to anything in New Hampshire, and it's only for the Republican Party. There isn't a commensurate uh, Democratic Party position. You were rep- representing people. I yeah, I was, and and uh, by the way, I was elected during the primary, which is paid for by the election committee or whatever, so the town. Yep. But the only the Republicans and de- Democrats really benefit from it. So these are private organizations that benefit from a government paid for election, which I don't agree with at all. But it doesn't change the fact that uh, you know, I mean, I ran for office and and did all this stuff, but I won't stand for the pledge either. Uh, and I, there's a variety of reasons, and I'm going to, I'm preparing as we uh, speak. I'm putting together, uh, you know, a, a PowerPoint to explain to the people at the event why, not why they should choose not to uh, stand for the pledge of allegiance, but at the very least, why I don't. I think if people just knew that it was okay not to stand for the pledge, why do people stand for the pledge? Because it wasn't okay not to when they were in third grade. I think they, uh, in part, I think they just, you know, they love they love the flag, they love the country, they love the FAA teams when they fly over the Super Bowl. I mean, what do you think? The number, 855-450-3733. It's 855-453. Why do people stand for the pledge? Why do you? Why do they stand for the judge? 855-450-3733. Free Talk Live. Is oral health important to you? If you don't like your own teeth, fresh breath, or kissing people, then by all means, stop listening. Several years ago, I met Jessica Armand, founder and CEO of My Magic Mud, and I became passionate about the product that she created and never want to live without it. It's clinically proven to whiten teeth, but I find it does much more. They want you to love My Magic Mud as much as I do, so they're giving you a money-back guarantee plus 20% off. Go to MyMagicMud.com and use coupon code FTL20 at checkout. MyMagicMud.com, FTL20. Free Talk Live. 
call in and talk about whatever's on your mind. That's what we do here on Free Talk Live. We take your calls. And the number is 855-450-3733. It's 855-450-FREE, as in freedom. I want to tell you about Bitcoin.com. Bitcoin.com, probably the biggest website uh, in cryptocurrency. It is the place to go for whether you need news on Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin Cash, whatever it might be. They've got it. If you're looking for to get started, They've got, they can, they can set you right up. There's a like getting started link right at the very top of the website. You go there. They've got the little videos you need to watch. Just a few of them. They've got a wallet you can download. They've got, uh, the wallet will allow you to get some free cryptocurrency. They allow you to buy cryptocurrency there at bitcoin.com. As a matter of fact, they've made it even easier to, to purchase crypt, uh, cryptocurrency, especially Bitcoin cash by going to local dot bitcoin.com you can get started trading bitcoin cash right there it's local.bitcoin.com my favorite is the news source i'm on their telegram group and i you know get every single story they put out they've got a real news organization they're not just uh, reprinting stuff like so many crypto organizations do it's bitcoin.com so uh jay we were we were trying to go into this story about the uh, dollar losing its uh, world's reserve currency status, and uh, we got kind of got sidetracked there by the pledge and marriage and a whole bunch of other things, but that's what we that's what happens happen. free talk life yeah so i uh get yeah, start, started here it's an article from zero hedge written by their um, anonymous author Tyler Durden so it starts off almost eight years ago we first presented a chart first created by j p Morgan. Morgan's Michael Kembalist, which showed very simply and vividly that the reserve currencies don't last forever and that in and that in the not too distant future, the U.S. dollar will also lose its status as the world's most important currency since it's never different this time. So since it's uh, um, since it's never different this time. Since it's never different this time. Yeah. yeah so I'm looking at this chart here, and it just shows the reserve currency status um, doesn't last forever. Is the the idea, and it's uh, say starts in fort the year 1400. It looks like somewhere around 1425. The claim is is that Portugal had the world reserve currency status. Now I couldn't tell you uh, for sure, but I up. Um, you know, a slight overlap, but then next comes Spain, who has I, darn close to the longest run here from According something like, chart. yeah, maybe 1525 to almost 1600. And these would be like the Spanish doubloons and the pieces of eight that we all heard about pirates having. And yeah, it, it crosses that right time frame for that. In the early days of the U.S., that Spanish currency was one of the most used. You're absolutely right. It's true. And what you could do with a piece of eight is you could uh, split it so that you could get it up into eight pieces. Is the idea is, is that it had this it's a scoring um, had a. There's some cool silver coins that you can split in four pieces and eight pieces that I've actually obtained over the years. And then it goes on to the Netherlands, which is a pretty short run shorter than the United States has had up to this point. Uh, it looks like it ends somewhere around the 1730s or thereabouts, probably about the time that uh, New Amsterdam was established because uh, Netherlands was an important uh, trade route, right? Yeah, yeah they were, they're big traders, and uh, that makes some sense. France, uh, passing through the 1750s on into 
probably somewhere close to 1800 and then the pound sterling going from say 1800 to about 1925 that's from Great Britain. And then the United States starts at about 1925, and then it, the, the chart goes up to 2100. Now, I have no idea, when none of us know, what is going to be the world's reserve currency in the year 2100. But it's probably not permanent for the U.S. It's yeah, that's the point they're trying to make is, is that what we, we need to define what the world's reserve and, currency status is. And these currencies are on his chart. They're... I assume they're all fiat as they're given basically a value because some powerful militaries, you know, or government forces it. But no, not all of them. Um, this, uh, many of them were actually the this. This just who was minting the bits of but, gold. But they're actually time. sound money behind them. It wasn't yep. like credit default swaps and fractional reserve banking and. Right. But, they didn't have like a masterful financial manipulation system, you know, 500 years ago or even 200 years ago like they have today. It's only in the last 100 years that this idea of a debt-based currency has come about. I mean, prior to that, there was always some sort of precious metal in the money or the money represented so, some redeemable. So there was precious metal in the money. I need but, you right on that mic, uh, Derek. I'm having but, tr- trouble getting levels from you. But it still could be a fiat currency could still be in a form of precious metal because it was, you know, the Queen of England is on that coin and that belongs to her, that coin is hers uh, kind of thing. This is where, you know, they come in like, you know, the U.S. dollar back when they took all the gold from everybody, that gold particularly wouldn't isn't what we would call fiat because it was actually hard sound currency, but it was fiat in the form of, hey, you can't own that anymore because that belongs to the United States because it says their name on it because they created it. So it was still a fiat. It was still controlled. I mean... Am I wrong? Well, I think that, um, yeah, I think that a fiat is probably best defined as a government currency that is not value-backed, you know, say by metal. So these are value-backed, obviously, these yeah. older currencies. But um, their status as the world's reserve currency is, for the purpose of the chart, it makes sense. It's saying this country had sort of dominion over saying we've got the best currency. So everybody was trading their currency at the time. They were probably wealthy enough that you could assume they weren't going to cheat you. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, I think, what it comes down to. As far as the United States and its uh, reserve currency status, it's... At this point, it's just basically people who are hoping that the U.S. continues to have good standing in the world and has the most valuable currency or whatever. And although it doesn't look like today, at this moment, that the U.S. is going to lose its uh, its status, I don't see it happening. But you never know when it's going to occur. Let's go on with the article. Well, I'm I'm hopeful that. Uh it is uh, all fiats, you know, collapse, and it goes to an actual cryptocurrency. I'm with you too, um, but I re- remember when there's a currency collapse and nothing has stepped into its place yet. There's pain and suffering. But there wasn't had. really anything last time. There was a real currency collapse on a major scale. It wasn't, you know, even right now. I don't think enough people are using cryptocurrencies to even take over at this moment. It still needs to mature more. I think that places like Venezuela and Iran and places like this, we may see some growth in the area of cryptocurrencies because people don't really have better choices. Well, if you listen to Dash Force News, they're they're always talking about all the uh, trading going on in Dash in Venezuela, and it's how it's growing tremendously every week. Back to the... Well, because they can now, right? Because you can 
cryptocurrency does cross borders where it was possible to keep uh, Britain's or France's currency out of Venezuela at one time, it would be, have to be physically smuggled. Now these countries that, that have their currency collapses can actually access these things. Right, because we actually have yeah, the abilities there. Yeah. Back to the article. As Kemblist put, in a January 2012, uh, I am reminded of the following remark from late MIT economist Rudker Don Borsch. Crisis takes, as mu- takes a much longer time coming than you think, and then it happens much faster than you would have thought. Yeah, and you know, ever since I've been six years old, people have been telling me the U.S. dollar is going to collapse, the economy's done, and I haven't seen it yet. Well, that's uh, the thing is, is that, I mean, think about uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. It happened inside of a week. But when we look at it now, we say, well, you know, this makes sense. Here are the factors that lined up to cause this to happen. Yeah, they just kept on printing that money. But whomever it, wanted it. whomever it was that, um, you know, looks at it now and says, well, that's uh, it was, it's obvious when you look at these factors. None of those people predicted it the week before. Because that would have been some pretty useful information from some prognosticator to say, ah, the Soviet Union is going to collapse next week. Well, that's the thing about predictions is, is that they're, unless you keep predicting the same collapse over and over and over again, then you're always going to be wrong. The number, 855-450-3733. 855-450-FREE. You're going to hear me stop talking in one second. Prediction. It's Free Talk Live. Call in. Talk about whatever's on your mind. It's Mark with you. Derek. And Jay. Derek there. Not on the mic. <laughs> Eat that mic, man. That's the way it goes. You okay. know, people are learning how to uh, use microphones. And when, when you talk in real life, you're not used to having a thing hanging right in front of your face. You're trying to talk to the people you're talking to. And you want to get around the things so that you can communicate better. Of course, that's not the way it works on radio, and that's we have headphones. But uh, regardless, going on with this article here from ZeroHedge.com, I, I think this is uh, it's very interesting. It's talking about the possibility of the United States losing its world reserve currency status, and if that what that means is is that currently, um, say China, when it buys fuel from Libya, buys oil, light, light sweet crude from oil, that purchase is likely denominated in u.s dollars but as of a year we can it's actually can be denominated in chinese yuan the shanghai cha- trading exchange uh, energy exchange uh started doing um crude oil in in uh yuan and not in u.s dollars uh, or in u.s dollars annual but added yuan uh right about a year ago which was pretty interesting and there's no mainstream speak of that and um, yeah, but I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, is that many countries are choosing it. to do business in U.S. dollars. And it's just because, you know, it's the same reason that I measure things in inches, even though I consider centimeters to be a better way to measure things. It's easy to find that countries that haven't denominated their oil sales or other things in U.S. dollars in the last couple decades is which of the countries that the United States has been bombing. <laughs> right. Yeah, and and a lot of the OPEC nations have been voicing out that they don't want to accept US dollars because they understand that the US just has a printing press and just can pretty much just create it out of thin air and it's always going to be valued less. Those OPEC nations have a religious mandate if they're Muslim countries and many people would say they were uh that the Islamic religion has a mandate 
to use gold as a currency. And, you know, for whatever reason, they don't. I think the United States Constitution also mandates that for people that subscribe to that religion. Then again, the Bible says don't steal, but the United States government still taxes people. So there you go. Uh, Going on from Zero Hedge, perhaps it's not a coincidence then that in the light of the growing number of mentions of MMT, uh, Derek, what is MMT? Modern Monetary Theory. Okay. I know very little about it, but it's essentially, my understanding of it is that just print the money to pay the bills. Borrow money, uh, borrow to create money. Yeah. Yeah. And that also includes this uh, universal basic income as part of this modern monetary theory stuff. You know, everybody gets a stipend. Just because you're breathing. Fortunately, that hasn't kicked in yet. Um, MMT and various other terminal destructive monetary policies that have been proposed to kick uh, on the current financial system that can, uh, the can, excuse, kick the can in the current monetary system just a little bit longer. Uh, That the topic of longevity of reserve currency status is once again becoming all the rage and none other than JP Morgan's private bank ask in this month's investment strategy note whether. The dollar's exorbitant privilege is coming to an end. I don't think J.P. Morgan's a private bank. They get all the bailouts, just like all the big banks. Well, um, maybe they have a subsection called, because this is capitalized here. It's called J.P. Morgan's Private Bank. So maybe they oh, have right. yeah, some subsection. It's not private. That's just the name of the company. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like Federal Express. It's not federal. <laughs> name my Name my name my company Mark Edge's ability to fly. Uh, what, whatever you can do, whatever you want. So why is J.P. Morgan, um, after first creating the iconic chart above, which has uh, since virtually uh, spread, spread virally across the financial corners of the internet, and this is the, a chart that sort of shows the length of time that countries had world reserve currency status, not only worried about the dollars. Reserve status may be coming to an end, but in fact goes so far as to state that we believe the dollar could lose its status as the world's dominant currency, which could see it uh, duplicate, uh, depreciate, excuse me, over the medium term due to structural reasons as well as uh, cyclical impediments. They were not otherwise expecting the dollar to depreciate over the medium term? I think that when they're talking about depreciation, they're talking about uh, depreciation against other currencies. Maybe. Oh, okay. And, okay. Um, that's, that's their perspective, I guess. And many times, the there, there's certainly a depreciation in value. I mean, comparing fiats to fiats is, as far as I'm concerned, is just like, I don't know, comparing fee. It's just, you're not comparing to anything real. It's right. just comparing crap to more I, crap. I, I mean, right. I just want the numbers to be bigger. I don't care what they're worth. <laughs> <laughs> I remember going to the grocery store. Um, you know, I guess this would have been 20 years ago or something, and buying a loaf of bread at 99 cents a loaf. And it's darn hard to find a bread, a loaf of bread for 99 cents these days. I suppose you can do it in certain stores and sale day or something like that. But basically, a loaf of bread is two bucks uh, a loaf, and the kind that my wife wants to get is four bucks a loaf. Right. But the kind your wife wants to get is organic, right? Yeah, that kind of thing. And there is nothing organic that's subsidized by the by uh, farm subsidies. Right. Uh, you can't spray Roundup on it. It won't be organic if you spray Roundup on it. Right. And those organic guys are struggling to sell at that low. If it wasn't for all the farm subsidies, sure. that bread would probably be more like 8 $9 a loaf. Yeah, I would agree with you that um, it's, you know, like they're, they're the market makers. They, the the people- subsidies is hiding the inflation rate when it comes to basically 
anything but organic food. This is why organic food is so expensive because the, the, the inflation rate is essentially not being hidden in organic food because the subsidies don't exist. Yeah, among other reasons that organic beef costs significantly more, you get an organic ribeye versus a right, regular ribeye. You don't have 50,000 cows, you know, jammed together in a, you know, 200-acre feedlot somewhere in Greeley, Colorado. Yeah, yeah I've I've never seen uh, oh, I haven't seen, seen how it. how uh, beef is done, <laughs> so I can't speak to it, but I certainly have seen how pork's done. And um, quite similar. Right, the United Factory States farming. government gives money to these, uh, you know, farmers that have these kind of animals or whatever, and they then give the them to Purdue, and then Purdue you know, basically keeps these farmers just enough money to, you know, do it again. Right, <laughs> and whereas the um, the organic guys, they're not getting the money. That's correct, and so. You have a situation where, you know, one side is getting, you know, a little stipend from the government. The other side isn't getting it, and they have to pass that on. But they're also competing against the one that is getting the subsidy. So that makes it very difficult to compete. If you're in business competing, you know, you got a gas station, another guy has a gas station, but the the other guy with a gas station across the, the street, his, his rich uncle gives him, uh, I don't know, $5,000 a month just for kicks – then you're going to have a hard time competing on price against that guy because his economics are entirely different than yours. It's like with eggs. These people sell eggs everywhere for 3 or $4 a dozen off their front porch here in New Hampshire. Yeah. And I, I have some friends who are like, oh, my God, you'll go pay $3 a dozen? I was just at Walmart. You can buy an, a 24-pack for like... You know, two ninety nine a dollar something, and it works out to like sixty two cents a dozen. Why would you go pay three bucks a dozen? And it's just like some people just don't get it. It's not apples to apples, right? Well, all you have to do is put them next to each other. Have you ever done ever done this? Where I have had store bought eggs in the house for whatever reason. You know, you got to get them sometimes, and just having. The store bought egg, and then the new, the one from the the farm. You you know, crack them, and they're in the same thing together. I mean, the yolk just looks sickly in comparison to an egg where chickens have been running around eating insects and and that sort of thing. Yeah, I had trouble. I had trouble with the uh, with the organic eggs or the the good egg because the yolk looks so different. I was like, this 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 looks weird. There's something wrong with this. Oh, is that kind of like the people who? Uh who, when you give them real maple syrup, they're like, ew, that's gross. <laughs> I've only had Aunt Jemima. <laughs> right. When I was a kid, I'd only had the corn syrup parading as maple syrup, uh, you know, up to that point. I'd never had anything else. So my expectation was this is what it's going to taste like on a pancake. And then I had maple syrup for the first time. I'm like, I don't like this. I don't want to eat this because it was different than what I'd had. Raw, just, mi- raw milk is the same situation where it just doesn't seem right to people. Yeah, yeah I mean, it. I, the first time I had raw milk, we were getting milk for my son's formula. My wife wanted to make his formula out of raw milk, and that's what the uh, her little you know breastfeeding thing said as far as you know supplements. And I had it, and I was like, this is kind of thick. It's it just felt like. You know, it was just sort of bigger to swallow. I don't really know how to describe it. it didn't it wasn't really thick, but big, in in a different way. Was it her cult of earthy, crunchy hippie mamas that suggested the uh, raw milk? I don't know where she got it, but I suspect it was something very similar to that. I mean, I don't know what the difference. It is far superior to that store bought pasteurized utter pus that they try to pass off as milk. I know that um, the milk that she was giving my son from her breast was certainly raw milk, right? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't raw cow's milk. 
but I can see why they would have chosen at that point for whatever reason to go with uh, the, the raw milk. So anyway, the number 855-450-3733. You want to tell us about Listeria? 855-450-FREE as in Free Talk Live or you can just use the Discord lines at discord.freetalklive.com. Download the app there. Discord.freetalklive.com. Business owners, you want more customers? Accept cryptocurrencies. I know you think it's nuts, but listen. People with Bitcoin walk past your store every day. Wouldn't you like it if they came in and bought something? Trust me, they want to. If you've ever talked with a friend or family member who has some Bitcoin, you know this. But how do you take Bitcoin? Is there like a free app you can use? Uh, yes. Go to helpmetakebitcoin.com. Helpmetakebitcoin.com adds Bitcoin to your point of sale totally free. There's nothing new to buy. Use the same equipment you already have. Now with Bitcoin. Let's you take other cryptocurrencies too. These things are like sports teams. Everyone's got their favorite and you can take all the good ones. And unlike credit cards, you pay no fees. Let the guys at helpmetakebitcoin.com bring new customers into your store. helpmetakebitcoin.com It's Free Talk Live. You are free to call in and talk live here on the airwaves. That's what we do. So call in. The number is 855-450-3733. It's 855-450-FREE is in freedom. It's Mark with you. Derek. And Jay. The number, 855-450-FREE. I got an article here from Reason. By the way, I got to hang out with some of the Reason guys at... Uh, Freedom Fest, and it was a lot of fun. Did you hang out with the guy who wrote this article? Uh, let me take a look. Eric uh, Bram. No, I did not. But, uh, uh, you know, there's some some big names there, Matt Walsh. And, uh, and oh, God, his name's uh, Nick Gillespie. Uh, was, uh, was escaping me there for a moment. Both great guys. The U.S. soccer pay gap is about more than just sexism. So the article isn't exactly new, but I was not going to comment on this uh, ladies' soccer situation, women's soccer league or whatever it's called, uh, until I felt like I had enough information. Because I don't know anything about sports, and I don't know who should make what or whatever. I know when somebody starts throwing around the term should, but I probably disagree with them. I noted... Who, who who would decide who gets paid what? Somebody. <laughs> right? I mean, it's a it's a negotiation. It should be a negotiation. A it should be and but with sports ball, so ma- the Department of Defense I and mean, we've read articles on this puts what I don't know billions of dollars a year uh, over X was a five point five billion dollars over like the past decade. Uh, the Department of Defense spent on sports ball promotions and giving it to like you know, Major League Baseball, football for like F-18 flyovers and halftime shows and you know, an, another subsidy in the bread and circus subsidies. They're subsidizing the bread and they're subsidizing the circus. Well, it says here from Reason, um, members of the World Cup Championship U.S. Women's National Soccer Team are agitating for better pay. Not all of them, but 
probably all of them, um, equal to what men on the U.S. Uh, team earn after winning their second consecutive World Cup and their fourth overall. They were feted with a uh, ticker tape parade through Manhattan on uh, Wednesday. And it's been some time, like I said. If pay, uh, if pay exclusively reflected performance, there would be no doubt that uh, Megan uh, Ripponi, uh, Alex Morgan, Rose Vaville, Julie Ertz, and the rest of the women's uh, team deserve far more than what the men's team are. The men's team, you may recall, failed to even qualify for last year's World Cup in Russia and has not progressed beyond the tournament's quarterfinal round since the inaugural World Cup in 1930. So basically, the U.S. men's soccer team sucks compared to the rest of the world. I didn't even know there really was a men's soccer team because I interacted with a lot of Mexicans and Brazilians uh, throughout my life, and those guys are just crazy about the football. Yes. And I'm like, yeah, football is cool. I, you know, My friends mm-hmm. like the Denver Donkeys are like, oh, no, no. No, no, this is real football is mm-hmm. not you. You hit each other with no pads. Real <laughs> men play real football. American football is all steroids and fat people running around with protection. You have no protection. But anyways, these guys, they're like this, they say there is no, you know, American soccer. Mm-hmm. They, they basically like it's irrelevant around the world. It doesn't even like come into play, you know, according to these guys. That's what it so, seems like. Yep. South American and European teams. I mean, I find an enormous uh, fallacy in that last paragraph, just in that people deserve, just in the word deserve. I mean, you don't, you deserve what you've agreed to, you, a person deserves what somebody has agreed to do for them, you know, and you deserve what somebody has promised promise to you right you know? so if the soccer you know the, the 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 person who's in charge of their particular soccer team says i'll pay you this per game or this per season or this per breath that you breathe out on the field that's what you deserve and no more and if you've got some extenuating things where unless your revenues increase by 20 percent or something like that the problem is that the problem with this whole the whole uh, employment picture i think is that people can't walk away and it's because that the regulatory stuff, all these things keep people so impoverished that they can't walk away. And people don't have a people people are in such fear of just walking away. If you want more money, if you want to go into a job negotiation, the only way you're going to win that negotiation is if you're willing to walk out. Right. If you don't want me, I'm out of here. If you can't pay me this, I'm out of here. You if you walk into there. that room, the employer knows that there's a rate that they simply refuse to pay at. And you know that there's a rate at which you simply refuse to work at. Because if you know you have options, if you know that you have value, mm-hmm. then then you then you are going to be able to be free to negotiate, you know, a higher rate or or walk. And- right. And ultimately, the the amount you're going to get paid is somewhere between what they refuse to go higher than and what you refuse to go lower than. And uh, you know, I can't really tell you what you deserve. Beyond that, the market determines what you deserve, right? You deserve whatever you were promised and nothing more. And by the way, write it down. Just, just like <laughs> just like yeah. the propaganda that the, the mainstream was spinning on the um, and it, maybe it's not really propaganda on the government shutdown. You had these federal employees talking about, oh, I can't pay my bills because I haven't gotten a paycheck in two weeks. I can't can't buy food for the family. Well, I have a lot of friends that work all different kinds of these jobs and they are all in there are many of them are in situations to where if they go like two weeks without pay 
they are literally screwed. They are just they are behind on everything. They don't, you know, it, you know, they went to college, you know, to do all this stuff, and they have, part of it's their college debt that they're paying, and they're they're and they're all living beyond their means, and they have to drive a shiny car every two years, and they, and they cannot walk away from their job. They have there's I go what you you can't just not work for six weeks. Well, you know, you don't you don't have six weeks of pay. A lot of Americans that. simply cannot, and as you know. Because these are talented people that could go, they're worth more in other, just doing other stuff, and but they're still just stuck to this job to where they can't afford to not have two paychecks. This is a controversial conspiracy rabbit hole, but I mean, I really, do, I really do personally believe that that uh, that you know, wealthy people don't need government. Uh, people that are kept impoverished do. Why is that? Uh, because because people that people that have means. Have the ability to aren't don't live in fear, you know. People that live in fear are they more can protect likely. themselves. Yeah, and, they can yeah. protect themselves. They can they can produce for other people. They can. And take they care also of their have family. confidence. This is where I they talk about the man camp thing with the confidence. The people who need government that feel they need government are the ones who lack confidence. Is 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 a very large portion of people who want government because they feel they cannot take care of themselves. They need government to take care of them. I can't educate my kids. I couldn't put my kids through school. I'm an idiot. I can't homeschool my kids. I've heard, why don't you homeschool your kids? I Oh, I can't do that. Yeah. I, I, that they need to go to school to do that. And when they determine what, what when a, uh, when a uh, government, when government people determine what, uh, what they're going to take from you, they figure out what people can afford. And what afford means is what can these people pay and right. still feed themselves? It's not what can they pay and, and save. You know, or improve their improve their. It's the same way. State. It's the same way as the negotiation with the employer. It's with that amount that they won't rise up and kill us over. Right. <laughs> right? Take as I much mean, as they want and do whatever they want with it. Yeah. There's an amount of money that the government uh, people could demand from you right. that you would refuse to pay. Right. Take as, they take as much as they can. Right, and that's what they do. Uh, let's go on here. It's easy to sympathize with the women's team when they demand better compensation, as they and their fans did during the trophy presentation on Sunday morning, shouting equal pay, equal pay. Presidential hopefuls have quickly uh, judged which direction the wind was blowing and jumped on the cause. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris have tweeted their support for equal pay on the soccer pitch. And New York Mayor Bill de Blasio on Wednesday said that he would pay female athletes equally if elected president. I don't know how the hell he's going to pay because he, the president deserve, determines God. their pay. Well, they could; they would just subsidize their pay. If you know, I mean, that's what it's going to come down to if they're going to do this. Yep, the uh, whole thing is predicated on that somebody decides what you get paid and you just accept it. This is the this is this whole article seems to be predicated on that principle, and I think that principle is 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 what's broken. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of people just don't want to take the uh, do the hard work of sort of starting their own business, which would allow them to make, in fact, what they do deserve. Because no, they'd rather whine the government. Like these, these soccer players want to whine the government about how they're not getting paid because they don't want to walk away from their jobs. Well, I mean, there's no place else for them to go if, and play soccer. Oh, they come to New Hampshire. I mean, there's a lot of help wanted signs here. 855-450-3733. 855-450-FREE is on Free Talk Live. Free Talk Live. Reading the story here from Reason Magazine about the uh, women's soccer team. Now, I know you've heard, heard a lot about that a couple of weeks ago, but I wasn't going to talk about it until I'd had a chance to 
really dig into this story. Everybody wants to comment right away, and I didn't. Oh, so think you that, do some homework on your show prep sometimes, huh? Doing my little, been doing my level best uh, at the very least. I've done some homework on oral health too, and I've come to the conclusion that the product, my magic mud, is. A fantastic product. I haven't been without it for more than a half a decade since I was introduced to it, uh, when it was a very new product. And you may never have heard of it, but what it is, is a black tooth powder made of charcoalized coconut shells and bentonite clay. They have a whole line of products that are made with the uh, charcoal, charcoal in them. And you, they're, they're all so non-toxic, you can swallow them if you want. I believe it has some health benefits, actually, when you swallow it, because... The bentonite clay, we would feed it to cows, and it would keep the mold acclins from the alfalfa from sticking to the internal guts of the cows because it would absorb them before they could actually get to the point to where they stick to the gut of the cow. It's a very important health thing in the dairy yeah. industry. Bentonite clay and um, uh, you know several other products, natural products, are they're used in livestock, and they're you know used to maintain health. Now, my magic mud is clinically proven to whiten teeth. I do swallow it sometimes. It depends on when I had my um, high blood pressure medication last. I don't want to swallow while it's still sitting in my stomach and combined with it. But if it's been some time, then I don't have a problem doing that. Uh, most major health food stores that's carried in are Sprouts or CVS, Natural Grocers, Walmart's Natural Beauty Aisle, and uh, Amazon. And pretty much any place you want to get it, you can get it. It is a, it's a product that's out there and available. But if you go to MyMagicMud.com and use coupon code FTL20, then you can get 20% off. Now, these, I believe it's $13 for a little tub that'll last you at least six months. You, br- you brush your uh, teeth four times, uh, once a day for four days. Um, and then after that, it's like every four to seven days after that, and it keeps your teeth white and, in my opinion, gets your teeth cleaner than your normal brushing does. I, it feels to me like when I leave the dentist from uh, tooth cleaning. It's MyMagicMud.com, coupon code FTL20, MyMagicMud.com, coupon code FTL20. Let's go to the phones. Before I get back to this article here from Reason, going to go to David calling in from New Mexico. David, you're on Free Talk Live. Yeah, you just dredged up a memory for me. When I, when I was like 12 years old or something, I was, there was a, the train tracks ran half mile over from our family farm, and the, it derailed one day, and the entire train was bentonite clay, and, and containers ripped open, and so there were like sand dunes for hundreds of yards of this white, powdery bentonite clay. So that was pretty funny because I'd go over there and walk around in it with your bare feet because it's like flour. What happened Anyhow. with it? It just stayed there? Uh, they, yeah, they came along and cleaned it up eventually. It sat there for several weeks until fairly heavy stuff, you know, dry clay powder, so it didn't blow around too much. Um, but it sat there until they came and cleaned up the wreck, yeah. I can only imagine that uh, if, it ra- if it rained on that stuff, it would just become permanent. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure they, I wasn't there the day they cleaned it up, but I'm sure they came in with a bulldozer, you know, uh, heavy equipment, earth-moving stuff, and picked it up pretty fast, probably. Probably. What's on your mind? Um, the uh, FBI says that New Mexico is the most corrupt state in the nation, and got some more supporting evidence of that. Um, since they are continue to illegally traffic my children, I'm going to pay them back by exposing some facts and 
but it cost them money with the with the people not wanting to come here and do business with them, um, which probably won't worry them too much because they're they're pretty much ha- half of the revenue for the state comes from people outside of the state of New Mexico, especially through your tax dollars and through your energy dollars. And I, I heard another stat today. The uh, oh, first of all, if you want to see a if you want to see some funny, entertaining, cringe cringe worthy. Uh, Google um, Michelle Lujan Grisham, governor governor of New Mexico, anyway, uh, uh, advertisement uh, of the wall, where she she runs, she crashes her little body through a drywall, uh, and says that, that that that's Trump's wall, and she's going to tear it down. And it's pretty cringeworthy, funny ad ad you can find uh, online. I wonder what standing she uh, has. I mean, I don't know. Uh, maybe the governor of New Mexico could uh, have a standing as far as the the wall goes. A standing, an ability to stop it. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. No. I don't think she has much bearing on it all, other than being the governor of the state that, that it's in her uh, state. Actually has right, but I don't think she's going to have much power to do anything about it. Anyway, energy dollars. Um, so, so the New Mexico well, the recent stats I heard is forty-two uh, percent of New Mexico's economy, and I don't know if I haven't verified these. Uh, they sound a little bit high, but. Um, 42% of uh, New Mexico's economy is uh, energy-related, and um, 350,000 energy-related jobs in the state of New Mexico. And when we say energy, we're talking about oil and gas. Um, and um, $7 billion, billion of, uh, which apparently is about half, $7 billion of revenue to the state of New Mexico in a year, which, once again, didn't sound quite right. But what I do know is that the the spending budget each year in New Mexico? There's two million people in the support one of the poorest states in the country, so their budget is way lower than most other states. But it's uh, uh let's see, what was it? It was like uh, eight billion dollars a year uh, presently. Well, and go ahead. Yeah, I'm just wondering what the uh, uh, are we coming to a conclusion with these numbers? It, numbers are difficult on the radio because people they can't they can't put them together in their heads. Yeah, well, the bottom the bottom line is, is is basically when you go and fill your car up, New Mexico is uh, almost the top energy producer in the nation now. They're they're number two, number three behind Texas. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, Texas, North Dakota, New Mexico, and they're gaining on the other ones, and so they might end up being you know number two, number one. Thank you, you go, fracking. When you spend any, pardon. So thank you, fracking. The fracking technology is really uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, know. and hor- horizontal drilling. But if, when you go, when you any dollar you spend on energy, when you go fill your gas up anywhere in the nation, um, or if you buy heating oil or natural gas to heat your home or whatever, uh, just figure that ten uh, percent of every dollar you you spend is coming to, uh, you know, the state of New Mexico. You know, might it might be five percent, it might be fifteen percent, but just figure ten percent. That money is coming here, and then these crooks do with it whatever that they're going to do with it. And uh, they're a left-controlled state, and and they they have the the previous governor left with a uh, budget surplus of about uh, over a billion dollars. You know, the state, so that's you know over ten percent, like twelve percent. That's the positive. Left with that. Well, it is. Yeah. If but the first you, thing, the first. Have your taxes gone down that, any? No, they went up. The first thing <laughs> that when the Democrats replaced the Republicans, the very first thing they did immediately is a sizable. Uh, tax increases, even though they had one of the largest surpluses ever. 
and with a with the next year this this coming year is going to be equally high surplus they're going to have an another uh, over a billion dollars extra money uh, last year and this year but yet the first thing they did was raise taxes oh david by- you've got to you, you got to pay your fair share david i mean that's what it is right you know it's important that you pay your fair share how much is your fair share whatever they say it is as much as they can take from you it's just whatever they say it is 855-450-3733 it's 855-450 free as in free talk live I want to tell you about my favorite cryptocurrency wallet, Edge Wallet at edge.app. Edge is the wallet I use more than any other, and that was true long before Edge Wallet became a sponsor of Free Talk Live. Edge Wallet allows you to buy, sell, trade, and securely hold your cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, tokens, Monero, Ripple, Dash, Bitcoin Cash, and more. It's available for both Android and iOS, and you can download it via the Play or App Store or via Edge Wallet's website, edge.app. Secure your freedom with Edge Wallet. Free Talk Live. Before we go on with this story here from Reason Magazine about the women's soccer team and the pay disparity going on there, or having gone on, whatever, it's kind of uh, it's kind of over at this point, but I'm sure it's not over for the ladies of the soccer team. I'm sure they're still thinking about it. But uh, I want to tell you about an offer that we've got here on Free Talk Live. If you're a business owner and you have a product or service that you want to sell and you're tired of spending money on digital or print ads that may or may not be seen by your best prospects, we have a solution for you. This is a a great offer, a sort of advertising technology I have never seen before, and that's the reason we got involved with it. It's a combination of direct mail and radio and digital all at once. It's an app that allows you to take a picture. And then when you take the picture, you can have that picture, if you like the picture, you can have it sent to you in the form of an actual 4x6 photograph. That 4x6 photograph has an advertisement on each one of them has an ad on it. And you can it has this special micro uh, perforation technology that makes it feel like it's, you know, uh, like it's been cut by a razor. And it was, so when you take it off, it's gone. But while you take it off, you got an ad, the ad in your hand, and this is a great way to get your ad in the hands of the people whom you want to reach. Most direct mail, which you know, direct direct mail is probably the easiest uh, form of advertising to predict what your return is going to be. Most direct mail isn't even opened by the people who receive it. This will be open because it's the pictures they ordered. If you want to find out more about it, go to one two three because it's easiest one two three one two three dot freetalklive dot com. Easy as one, two, three at one, two, three dot freetalklive.com, making it that much easier. Let's go to Robert calling in from Indiana. We'll get back to this uh, women's soccer story, hopefully. Um, Take it right now. Robert, you're on Free Talk Live. What's on your mind? Are you taking bong hits? Sounds like he's snoring. You know, in Indiana, that's not legal. There's places where you can call in from. And it's fine. No, is, is Dave off the air yet? <laughs> yeah. Dave? Hey, Derek. Hey. Yeah. Blue Mark and- yep, there we go. Um, yeah, that's uh, not Robert. <laughs> it's a guy who's not allowed to call in. It's funny, though. That's a clever call. Not going <laughs> to fault him for that one. But I don't get to decide. At this point, he's banned from the airwaves. 
So, uh, going on, this debate is not happening um, only on the campaign trail, talking about the women's uh, uh, soccer pay situation. In New York's Canyon of Heroes, or on Twitter, the members of women's uh, team are suing their employer, the United States Soccer Federation, and the two sides have agreed to mediate the dispute out of court. That's important background for understanding why the women's team is trying to ramp up political and social pressure on the Federation. But really, the debate over whether the U.S. women's team should be better compensated is about two related and overlapping issues. So here it is. Here's the meat of it that you're probably not getting. One is a matter of accounting. The other is about economics, specifically about the importance of markets and about how workers are harmed when they do not exist. Writing at Commentary, Christine Rosen dives deeply into the first argument, meaning the argument about accounting. She notes that last year's Americanless World Cup in Russia, this is the men's, generated $6 billion in revenue, while the women's event in France this summer is expected to earn about $131 million. There's a big difference, ladies and gentlemen, between... Do they need to force more attendance at these things? Right. Between $6 billion and $131 million. And a lot of it's not in the United States. So at high school, when I was in high school... There was a girls' basketball team and a boys' basketball team. Yep. The boys' basketball team, there you couldn't find a seat if you didn't get there 20 minutes before the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, the girls' basketball team was like, it was just the moms and dads. Yeah. That was it. And you could look at that and you could say, it's not fair. And you know what? The, the girls, girls tried just as hard. The girls were definitely hot, but the action sucked. Yeah, and I wasn't really into basketball, but right. the, the boys' games just were a lot more thrilling. If yeah, if the seats are empty, that's the market speaking, right? I mean, you can't force people to attend a game. I'm not into volleyball as a sport. I don't know everything about it. I mean, I played it and, and PE and all that stuff. But I can tell you that for some reason, I find the women's volleyball, the two, two-person women's volleyball, to be extraordinarily interesting whenever I see an opportunity to watch it. It's probably because they're wearing something akin to a two-piece bathing suit. I agree. I've watched a lot of volleyball games. And the cameraman is, uh, you know, he's got the camera right up their butts most of the time. And I don't know, this might be a solution for some women's sports to get more viewers and more attendees. I don't know. And I suspect there's probably some women's sports players that think that I'm a sexist pig for just saying that. I don't know. Look, just saying it might be a solution. Anyway, uh, so the big the big difference between six billion and one hundred and thirty one million is sort of the difference between the men's and the women's uh, revenue uh, from World Cup. As a percentage of total revenue, FIFA, the body that governs international soccer and runs the World Cup, actually pays out larger prizes to the women's team than to the men. That's as a percentage of total revenue, not larger prices. So. They if, pay equally? No, it's not the same. It's okay. just larger. Uh, you know, it's as a percentage larger to women than it is right. to men, but it's larger to men than it is to women because the disparity is tremendous. Six billion versus 131 million. And that's just a marketplace speaking. I mean, you know, it's just it's just reality. But what about the pay disparity between the men's and the women's teams? Outside of prize money and major tournament, excuse me, outside of prize money and major tournaments, the Wall Street Journal reports that the U.S. men's and women's teams have generated about the same amount of revenue from games played since 2015. All the, to- the totals account for only about half of U.S. soccer's annual income. 
Yet as Rosen again points out, the women's team continues to get shortchanged when it comes to the percentage of the Federation's budget spent on advertising and PR, travel and training budgets, and per diems for food. U.S. soccer has no good reason to feed the women's team less than the men's or to make them sleep in subpar accommodations. Those inequalities should be addressed. Beyond that, though, it's, that's what Reason says here. Reason's making the assertion that it's that probably the binnies that uh, the teams get should probably be more similar. But beyond that, though, it's difficult to argue that the pay gap is unfair or sexist. It's largely the result of different pay structures that both teams have collectively bargained with the U.S. Soccer Federation for. Again, Rosen has the best explanation I've seen for the pay gap. This is a lady who uh, sort of did a report. The teams, the women's team collectively bargained for and won a pay structure that guarantees them salaries, severance pay, medical benefits, and some performance-based bonuses. The women's team wanted the security of salary-based pay rather than purely performance-based pay, and they wanted to guarantee a salary even for players who were on the roster but didn't play. By contrast, the men are strictly pay for play. They do not receive a salary or additional benefits like health insurance or severance pay. Their pay structure is performance-based. Because of the different pay structures, the straightforward comparison is difficult. The U.S. women earned a base salary of $100,000 annually, while the men are paid $5,000 per game, with bonuses for winning. Why would the women agree to different pay structure? In part, that probably has to do with how much players are earning elsewhere. Probably also has to do different to do with uh, psychology. There's a lot more competition if you're getting paid based on your performance to whether, you know, so those guys are going to be trying a lot harder. And if and the other, you know, the women are just getting paid a salary, whether, you know, they, they play or not or score, you play as hard as they can. Or not. There's no incentive. So it's probably not as fun, you know, if you're a, a soccer fan, the competition within the um, men's league is probably much greater. It's just like people love college football and don't like pro football because the college guys are all trying really hard. Well, the winners, um, I mean, the women are winners. I mean, these they're, they're beating the other women and going to the and then going off to the World Cup and doing all that stuff. So, uh, you know, maybe that's the case. Maybe it's not. I don't know. It's hard to compare these uh, again because it's not apples to apples. But, uh, yeah, we'll get to your calls here. Coming up, the number, 855-450-3733. It's 855-450-FREE, as in Free Talk Live. Free Talk Live, final segment, talking about the women's soccer team and the pay disparity there, reading through an article here from uh, Reason Magazine. feel like they've done a good job in uh, parsing the issues out, but we're going to go to your phone calls here. Go to Bob calling in from Oklahoma City. Bob, you're on Free Talk Live. Hey, what are you guys up to, man? I'm watching you guys on the live cam. On which cam? The live cam. On the live live webcam. I can see all you guys. Okay. My question was for Jim Barney, your guest today. Jim Barney? Uh, Are there going to be any sequels to Ernest Goes to Jail starring Mark? (laughs) (laughs) Ernest Goes to Jail. I don't don't get the joke. I'm sorry. Can you explain it to me? Your your guest looks like Jim Varney. Who is Jim Varney? Oh, that's me. 
I guess. Ernest P. World. I got the beard, yeah. Okay. No, you were probably in prison when it aired. I don't know. Maybe you missed it. I, I recall Jim Varney, yeah. He was, well, when was that? That was mid late 90s. When you yeah. were in prison? Might be. I, I know that was from 1989 to 1998. I was released uh, by uh, an order of the Florida Supreme Court. Yeah. Yeah, that was late 90s, 96, 97, I think, was when that got Are you guys talking to each other? Or I'm talking to you. I was released by uh, an order of the Florida Supreme Court, is what I said. Oh, okay. Well, I was just saying, maybe you don't, you missed the Ernest movies. I wasn't trying to call you out. They weren't very good. I I do remember the Ernest goes to jail thing, kind of, yeah. I don't, he went to jail. It looked like, your buddy there looks kind of like Jim Varney. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. I don't know. Is that Varney with a V? If we say Jim Varney over and over again, I'm still not going to know who the hell it is. So it wouldn't make a difference. Anyway, uh, you know, there's the chuckle. Ha! You look like Jim Varney. I could use a haircut. Right. Well, couldn't we all? Uh, the professional soccer players are also paid privately by um, pr- the privately owned club teams. Megan Capino, sorry, Megan, for example, plays for the Seattle Reign FC, one of the nine teams in the National Women's Soccer League. That's the NWSL. And player salaries in the NWSL range from about 16000 to $46,000 annually. Now, don't forget, they also get $100,000 from the uh, the whole uh, the women's organization and according to the to NPR that's not a lot and it's certainly less than um, even the lowest paid player players on the major league soccer uh, the top North American men's pro soccer league who earn a mandatory minimum salary of sixty thousand dollars annually that pay gap isn't the result of sexism it's what the market allows major league soccer teams drew an average of 21,000 fans last year, while NWSL, that's the women's games, drew about 6,000. The TV contract um, from the men's was, with ESPN and other broadcasters, generated $90 million a year. Now, neither league discloses revenue figures. It's safe to bet that uh, the men's earns considerably more, and thus its players do too. If that changes, women's salaries will increase and Really, that's the best way to make sure your favorite World Cup players earn even bigger bucks. As Rapinoe acknowledged during an appearance on the Rachel Maddow show this week, um, fans can come to games. She said, obviously, the national team games will be a hot ticket, but we have nine teams in the NWSL, and you can go to your league games and you can support that way. You can buy players' jerseys and you can lend support in that way, and you can tell your friends about it and you can become season ticket holders. And this is the part of the story that I really wanted to get to. People who have never gone to a women's soccer team are outraged that the women's soccer team is not making as much as the men's. People who have never gone to a women's soccer game are outraged that men, the people that go to a men's soccer game, are not going to a women's soccer game. People who have no business having an opinion. If you haven't been to a women's soccer game... You really have no business having an opinion on what they get paid because you haven't been able to willing to shell out a single dollar or a moment of your time. If you think you somebody should get paid more, you should hire them yourself. That's ultimately what you're doing. When you go to when you buy a ticket, you're you're hiring those women to play a game for you, hopefully to win a game for you. Um, presumably, you have your favorite, whatever side that is. But I mean, your ticket's going to to, to see both sides play. And there's nothing wrong with that. Hopefully you get a good game. Yeah, it's like going to a concert. You know, if the if the band doesn't any good, 
people aren't going to show up at the concerts. And then if the band's really good, people show up at the concerts and they pay more money. I mean, there's a bidding system for, you know, is a band going to play this venue or that venue? And it, it comes down to who's willing to pay them more and how much they're willing, able to pay is based on how many people are going to show up. Right. And why is it that my local, you know, cover band doesn't get to play at the Super Bowl, but um, I, I don't know any of these people's names. Britney <laughs> Spears does. I, God, I'm dated. Um, anyway, you know, it's not fair. Well, it's fair because whomever plays the Super Bowl is likely a really big act and going to do a really great job. What's not fair is forcing people to pay other people. Right. right. That's ultimately what it comes down to. So the author goes on here. She's absolutely right. For all the attention that the World Cup generates, club teams are always going to be where soccer players make their money. And those club teams are beholden to the same rules that govern private businesses everywhere. Requiring the Seattle Reign to pay every player as much as the men's Seattle Sounders would bankrupt the women's team. That brings us to the second part of the debate. Part of the problem facing the U.S. women is the fact that there are no markets in international soccer. What I mean by that is that there's no ability for the U.S. women to demand better treatment by taking their talents elsewhere. Even if a player does qualify to play on multiple national teams, in the event that they had parents from two different countries, for example, under FIFA rules, she's locked in uh, place once she makes a single appearance on the field for a national team. Think about it like this. If Rapinoe is unhappy with her contract with the rain um, in, uh, I think it was in Seattle or wherever, she can field offers from uh, other eight teams in the uh, women's league, but she could never, uh, but she could ever, she could ever take offers from women's teams in other countries. I presume that's supposed to be never. Um, even take offers. Uh, Sunday's World Cup finale was held in Lyon instead of Paris, in part because the local cl- team club, the Olympic Leonidas uh, has a reputation for paying high salaries to female players and, not surprisingly, attracting the world's top talent. Even with markets, there would still be obvious financial constraints. The popularity of women's soccer and the revenue generated by individual clubs may not allow teams to offer Rapinoe or Morgan the amount of money those players feel they're worth. Let's go to the phones here real quick. We've got Dale calling in from Colorado. Dale, you're on Free Talk Live. Hey, guys, listen, it's a little change of topic, but I just wanted to warn uh, your listeners, especially if they're on the road traveling, do not go through the state of Wyoming. Uh, Avoid Interstate 80. They are busting people for CBD hemp oil. Really? Yes, sir. They are busting people. You can do a search on it, CBD hemp oil, arrest Wyoming. They are arresting people for it, claiming they're finding nano amounts of THC, which, as we all know, is in the billions of parts, which right. is ridiculous. But if they did find it, what, what difference would it make? I mean, if it is in there, so what? It's not getting anybody high. These roadblocks? No, it's not, but it, does, it, it doesn't matter, Mark. As we all know, it's a prison industrial system, and it, yep. you know, it's, it's not about uh, that at all. What, it, if, they, what if they tested people's uh, dollar bills or $100 bills or whatever for cocaine? I remember there was a report at one point that uh, you know, like every $100 bill had some amount of cocaine on it because it would rub up against other $100 bills and, and, and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And so, absolutely. I mean, and, and arresting people for that. that in the sewage as well. You know, they test our sewage and it, it consistently comes up with pharmaceuticals and coke in it. But, but I'm telling you, Wyoming, is a, they call it the cowboy state. And, and these guys uh, don't go through there. 
If you're from, coming from California, Nevada, Washington, Oregon, they will profile you. So yeah, I if you have Colorado plates, when I was in Colorado, they at the uh, a lot of guys would always say, "Don't go to Wyoming; they just bust you for having." Um, it's like Massachusetts years ago. They would even recently they set right up the cops, and a weekend before Fourth of July, they just start pulling people over looking for fireworks coming out of New Hampshire. Coming out of New Hampshire, and this is like this is how states are. I remember that my dad was of the opinion that if you had Florida plates and you're driving through Georgia, you're going to get a ticket for something. That's right. Because. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He was, he was of the opinion that, uh, and I, I believed him. I believed him everything he said, uh, but he was of the opinion that, uh, well, you won't fight it. And Georgia sucks. So. Yeah. Wyoming's got the second highest incarceration rate in the U S one out of 48 are on probation in prison, uh, jail. It's outrageous. They're broke every year you know it's boom and bust out there so they uh they pull people off that interstate so it's stay highest, off of it people it's, it's revenue still thanks for the call dale yep. what's that i was just asking if the highest was still louisiana i heard that there was louisiana has a really high incarceration rate i will point out that uh you know my dad's opinion on uh, georgia probably had something to do with him being a gators fan too uh, so there you go well in new hampshire i've been told cops don't want to pull you over if you have a montana plate because they know they have to go to court if they write you a ticket. A lot of free staters have Montana plates. That's right. Yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, check us out at freetalklive.com. You can uh, sign up there to get the newsletter. And we'd love to be sending that out to you. We send it out uh, once a month. Never more. Freetalklive.com. Thanks. All right. It's another edition of the Edgington Post Show. I am Mark Edge coming to you for Free Talk Live. And today I've got with me an, an advertiser, David McIlvaney of McIlvaney ICA. David, are you there? I am. Great. Where are you coming to me from? You sound awesome. Durango, Colorado. Four corners of uh, uh, just a beautiful area surrounded by mountains on three sides. Uh, we live we love uh, living here and, and calling it our home. Yeah, Durango is down there, I think, in the southwest corner of Colorado. Do I have that right, or is it southeast? Yep. Nope, that's correct. Southwest, yeah. So that's the, the little spot where that cross comes in, um, where you know you just draw it right on the map. A huge section of, uh, of land there. So I, I wanted to ask you a few questions about McIlvaney ICA. Now, you guys are one of the premier uh, distributors of metals and uh, numismatic coins in the United States. And you've been doing it for a very long time. If somebody was sort of thinking about, uh, you know, maybe the stock market's giving them a little, uh, you know, they're scaring them a little bit. People are buying gold right now. If they're thinking about getting into gold, what would you tell them? Yeah, well, just a couple comments on the company. We've been around since 1972. Gold was made legal in January 1st, 1975. And my father was integral uh, with two other guys in getting gold legal again for U.S. citizens. It had been illegal from 1933 to January 1st, 1975. We found um, some loopholes, uh, tax loopholes that allowed us to be in the business and have sort of a first mover advantage selling bullion uh, to Wall Street firms and their clients there in the early 70s. So we've been innovators for decades and have kind of led the charge in terms of new products. Um, IRAs, 1986, the rules changed there and allowed physical metals into IRAs. And we were one of the very first We've put hundreds of millions of dollars into physical metal IRAs. Uh, so, you know, we've, we continue to innovate with various products and offerings, uh, both here in the United States and overseas. Uh, the most recent, which was Vaulted, which is um, basically a savings and banking alternative, just denominated in gold, our partnership with the Royal Canadian Mint. 
And um, we love what we do. We love helping people. Um, within the McIlvany Financial Group of Companies is also our asset management company, where we've got a tremendous team, tremendous team who wonderful credit analysts and uh, natural resource analysts and um, just a, a really neat family of, of, of offerings designed to help people navigate uh, challenging uh, market environments. And um, I mean, uh, no, it, these, these sound like uh, really great things. When I called up, I was uh, given over to a guy who's, you know, very knowledgeable right off the, the bat. Eric is his name. And um, he was able to educate me sort of the difference between bullion and numismatics. And uh, can you, you know, give me some uh, explanation uh, right there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, education is a part of who we are. It's, it's um, I think, maybe in another life we, we would have been educators, uh, both my father, my mother, myself. Um, and maybe the next generation too, second generation family business as we speak. Education is a priority. We want our clients to make very good decisions and uh, do it with with a lot of context. Uh, the difference between bullion and, and, and collectible coins, uh, bullion focuses on just the commodity value. It can be a coin, it can be a bar. Um, and, and that's where really you're just tracking the, the, the spot or just the melt value of, of the gold or silver itself. And uh, collectibles have kind of a, a dual story. One, you have the commodity value, which can go up and down, but there's also scarcity value. And with scarcity comes an interesting um, opportunity, given that a lot of uh, the kinds of products in question um, have various degrees of scarcity, supply and demand factor in huge. So you might have a, a coin that today sells for, say, a 20% premium over its, its raw metal value. But has a history of trading to 150, 200, 300 percent premiums, and so there's opportunities to gain and to to use those ratios to your advantage and increase the total ounces that you control if you're looking for that kind of inter-market arbitrage, if you will. So for us, setting the stage um, for a strategy begins with education. And some people, some clients just say, no, I just want something very basic. And that's fine. We, we go to bullion in that case. Um, and if, if they're looking for a more dynamic portfolio, then there's ratios between gold and silver. There's ratios between platinum and palladium. There's premium plays. Uh, with with things like junk silver and, 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 and bars of silver, all kinds of things. But what you pointed to first and foremost, what Eric introduced you to, is is really our mode of existence as a company. Educate, educate, educate. I've been doing a podcast every week for 11 years, and it really is with a desire that investors would be making smart decisions with a broad context of macroeconomic inputs. So we look at public policy, we look at geopolitics, we look at a whole range of things that impact the markets and decision makers in the markets. Education, education, education is is a theme for us. You've been podcasting since 2009. You've you've one of the pioneers of the uh, the, the medium. Yeah, 2008. March 2008. 2008 was when we began and and it's been uh, amazing, absolutely amazing. We've talked to some of the most important central bankers and uh, politicians and uh, influential policymakers, and it's just it's been it's been really fun. Um, a part of our lifelong learning expression. How do people find the podcast? Uh, they can find it on iTunes, certainly. Um, looking for McIlvany Weekly Commentary, or we have our own website, McIlvany Weekly Commentary. Um, th those would be the easiest ways if you're interested in the commentary. We've got a slew of websites, uh, so w that that's that's the one that's really education focused. And what about YouTube channels? 
Yeah, YouTube. If you look up McIlvaney Financial, um, you will find us on YouTube and uh, you'll see something up there twice a week. We do two different programs each week. One is really gold and silver centric called Golden Rule Radio. And the other is the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary, which is broader based. We're interested in a lot of questions where you might find us uh, talking about Bitcoin and who controls the internet uh, and the gateways uh, within that that space. Or you might find us looking at, at Mideast politics and, and changes in terms of who wants to, to control the narrative uh, between Sunni and Shia. So it really is broad ranging because, again, we want context for people to be able to make wise decisions in light of events that are occurring with, with some history and some background informing what they have to put into action. Right. There's no investment that exists without the context of sort of global politics and news, uh, all of them. It becomes very, very important. I'm sure there's some people wondering to themselves right now. It's McIlvany as in M-C-A-L-V-A-N-Y, not uh, M-A-C. So, That's right. Yeah. Um, and, and tell me about Vaulted. I used this product, but I can't say that I would call myself an expert at this point. We saw a need in the market for a very transparent, straightforward approach to gold investing, especially for a younger generation who might be newer to uh, the, the market or to gold. So we developed Vaulted. It's, a, it's an easy-to-use web app or web-based application, and it, it, to us, it reinvents the way people invest in gold and really gives the investor the ability to say, well, do I want these dollars at the bank paying virtually nothing, or do I want some exposure to ounces? And the ability to come and go from that product, again, this was partnered with the Royal Canadian Mint, the ease of, of use with that application uh, is fantastic. It's vaulted.com um, if, if you're interested. And I think a, a key value that we embraced through the development was transparency. Uh, gold investment opportunities have been criticized due to hidden fees and taxes and vaulted addresses all of those issues by providing transparency throughout the investment process with some of the lowest fees in the industry and all that's kind of shared uh, right up front with you. Another challenging thing within the gold space, if you look at the global geography and where gold comes from, not all of it comes from pretty uh, or, or put together places. And I think gold that is certified conflict-free, that's important to us and that's important to our clients. And so that has been a part of, the, the, of our vaulted program. And I think unlike other gold investing platforms, with vaulted you can buy and sell real gold. It's stored there at the Royal Canadian Mint. You can request your gold bars at any time. They ship to you uh, securely via FedEx. And I, I guess what people have given us feedback on is that they like its convenience. Uh, they like how user-friendly it is, and they like the fact that it's applicable to virtually everyone in the family. And I'll be honest with you, Mark, I, I kind of designed that feature for my own kids, saying, you know, there's there's occasions where one of my little ones is interested in putting $10 into gold yep. and not necessarily 1000 or 10000 So it's that easy, and it's that low in terms of the commitment. You You can start with – and you can treat it as a savings program, and that's the way my kids treat it. The funny thing is, that's exactly what I did with my son. I brought him over, and we have been doing a, a savings program. And I said, "Look, and, and and I think he should be diversified, not just in, uh, you know, some savings account or something like that. You know, here's an opportunity. Look, Jack, you can put in the small amount, um, and you know, something as low as ten dollars, and you can have it in gold. Um, 
but when you're talking about keeping it at another bank, what do you think about that, keeping it in a vault someplace? Um, you know, I mean, I've heard people say it's better because then the government can't come take your, your gold out of your house. But I've heard other people say, well, then they just go there to take it. So what do you think? Yeah, I think that when you're looking at planning your finances, uh, you want to have multiple options. And you, you have plan A, you have plan B, you have plan C. And some of those plans incorporate worst case scenarios. I don't know that there's any plan that addresses every possible contingency or risk. So that's why you have multiple things going on, sort of multiple arrows in the, in the quiver, so to say. And so I do think the ease of use with the app, it appeals to a younger generation who might, you know, settle a bar tab using Venmo between buddies or whatever. You know, there's a, there's a variety of ways in which um, the digital medium has taken over our lives. And it's, it's one of the reasons why Vaulted has been so well accepted. Uh, on that basis. But, you know, we also have a lot of clients that would say, look, I don't want anyone to know that I own this, and I'd rather take physical delivery of it and and put it in a home safe or, or a safety deposit box. I'm not a, a critic of that either. It's just another one of those arrows in the quiver. Um, probably one of the most effective tools, the ways to own gold very effectively is inside of an IRA. W within an IRA, you can go back and forth between gold and silver, platinum, palladium, some of the ratios I was mentioning earlier, and grow your ounces. You know, To imagine expanding your financial footprint without necessarily requiring an increase in the value of gold or silver, but through time you can multiply, like rabbits in a hutch, you can multiply your gold and silver ounces without adding more money to the account using those ratio trades and do it tax effectively inside of an IRA. So again, just another arrow in the quiver. I, I think I'm, I'm pro uh, on all of them, recognizing that there's a few um, disadvantages to all of them and a few advantages to all of them, each of them as well. Since you mentioned taxes, I know that relatively recently, maybe in the last 10 years, the United States government started requiring, um, you know, the reporting of turning gold and silver into other things. I don't know. I, you know what? I shouldn't be saying what I know. I don't know much, but I, th I think the tax situation sort of changed on metals. Can you elaborate on that? Well, I, I think the the reality is Uncle Sam wants his his slice of the pie regardless of what the asset class I'm is. I'm glad you didn't call it his fair share. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, no, fair share would, 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 would imply that somehow he's earned it. And well, Anyways, for another conversation, perhaps offline. Uh, but, you know, the, the tax issues relating to gold, this does go back um, to the 80s when it was treated as a collectible uh, and that gave it a, a distinction. You never go from having a short-term capital gain to a long-term capital gain with, with the metals. And so in that sense, it's disadvantaged because the number stays large even if you own it beyond a year. And this applies whether you're talking about GLD and SLV. These are exchange-traded funds that give you sort of a proxy for the price. They, too, if you're dealing with a tax person that knows his, his stuff or her stuff – they're also disadvantaged in that way, which, again, is one of the reasons why if you're setting up a trading account or approaching the metals uh, and want to see growth along with asset preservation, treating it as an insurance play but with a growth component, 
boy, that IRA is a great way to approach it because obviously you have no disadvantage there. Yeah. There is no such thing as capital gains. Um, there's long-term implications uh, as you're taking money out of an IRA, uh, but but you know you you don't have the short-term, long-term cap gains distinction. There's no issue with, with it with an IRA. Right, and 99 plus percent of us are going to live to 59 and a half or have a family member, um, you know, be alive when we live to 59 and a half. It would have, would have been 59 and a half. So um, an, an IRA makes perfectly good sense because you're it's going to be there and, and you're going to get to take advantage of it. I love the fact that you can put metals into a Roth IRA because, you know, there you're talking about – I see the profile for gold and silver as, as having a very high growth profile. And what I, what I mean is is to see gold in the 50 uh, – I'm sorry, silver in the 50 60 $70 range off of a current 15 level and, and, and gold at $2,500, $3,500 an ounce, that's not going to surprise me. And it's really not commentary – on the growth trajectory of the metal as much as it is commentary on the decline in value of the US dollar and when you when you look at you know even the recent tweet from Trump this week he he was saying look i he was scolding mario draghi for printing money and 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 being so accommodative in his monetary monetary policy there in europe with the european central bank and and then he swings back around at the yep. end of his tweet and says, but we should be doing the same. And I'm thinking to myself, this is competitive currency devaluation. This is how gold goes up in every currency because it reflects weakness in every currency. Now, I think there's the added traffic of concerned investors who want to preserve purchasing power and value through time, and they move into gold too, and that exaggerates the move higher in gold. But to me, if you can have that growth locked into a Roth IRA where you've already paid Uncle Sam up front, there's no tax advantage on the front end in terms of a write-off, but there's also no tax to be paid ever uh, when you're pulling funds out. You're 59 and a half, as you mentioned, or the mandatory distributions at 70 and a half. It's all tax-free. That's that's a beautiful trajectory. If you see a high-growth asset, what a, what a, what a brilliant tool. Yeah, and it seems to me that if I were looking at the financial markets that gold has a real opportunity of uh, taking off right now, uh, David McElveney, what I thought the the brilliance of uh, what you just said is, is that many people will say that uh, the U.S. dollar is strong right now. Well, that's a true statement if you compare it to crappy other fiat currencies, you know, the EU, the ruble, uh, the yuan, uh, the, the, the yen, whatever it is that we're talking about out there. But it's just being devalued slightly less quickly. My my good friend, he's no longer with us, but uh, a, a man who was in the gold business forever up in Canada, um, actually in the mining industry, used to say that the dollar is the best looking horse in the glue factory. <laughs> and and, and, I, and I, I love Ian's comment on that, the best looking horse in the glue factory. That, that really describes the U.S. dollar. So, yes, you're, 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 you're the best of the losers. And, and that's, that's kind of why I think when you look at the long-term story of gold and wealth preservation and asset protection, Looking at European history, let's stretch beyond American history to European and ancient history. Every experiment with money 
has included at some point moving towards paper, where yeah. you've got the free ability to print and create as much of it as you want. And every one of those experiments has ended in disaster. And that's why the public at some point demands a return to the disciplines of gold. Guess what? Central bankers don't like those disciplines. They like to be freewheeling. When I mean, you look at the PhDs that we have in our money system today, these are guys and gals who are smart. They earned the PhDs, but they believe too much in their ideas. They've got too much vested interest in their ideas. And I don't know, the old principle of pride comes before the fall. You see that over and over and over again in the world of money, in the history of money, where people believe that they can do a better job and it'll be more refined, it'll be more sophisticated, and it works for 10, 15, 20, 50 years, and then boom, it's gone. An extinction event occurs. Sooner or later, uh, the best jugglers drop the plates. And we're not talking about your grandma's fine china here. We're talking about the most valuable plates on the planet. And uh, what we're doing is we're asking smart people, as you've said, to continually not make mistakes. And we we saw relatively recently during the financial crisis from, I don't even know when to call it, 2005 through 2010. I mean, this, this, uh, you know, this, this five-year period where America held its breath and, uh, you know, things weren't so great. Gold and silver, they did pretty good during that time frame. Um, well, uh, yeah, go ahead. I think that's one of the things, Mark, that that uh, your listeners would benefit from. As you look at the financial landscape today, stocks are at all-time highs, and and they've pushed to these levels over a ten-year period. The longest that bull is, run in history. That is exactly right. So when you look and say, well, all markets are cyclical. We've just had the longest bull run in history. Maybe it lasts another two years. Maybe it lasts another two days. Right. We're we're in my opinion on borrowed time. And and you mentioned how well gold did in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Well, keep in mind there was a lost decade in stocks between two thousand two and two thousand twelve, where stocks did nothing. They went down, they went sideways. But if you had invested around the turn of the millennium, there in two thousand twelve, you are no better off. You've made no money in the S and P. You've made no money in the Dow, and you're actually still upside down severely from a Nasdaq holding. And yet gold is motoring higher at 10 to 12 percent annual returns compounded. It was amazing. And that's the way gold functions when there's less confidence in equities, when there's less confidence in bonds, when those markets are under pressure. Guess what? Gold does very well and vice versa. When stocks and bonds do very well, gold and silver take a back seat. So you've just gone through a period where gold and silver are actually in the position to be considered a value play. A value play. They're cheap relative to just about anything else on the planet, and just about every other asset is very expensive. It's hard to put money to work in, in, in a, if you're a value investor today. And, and I would encourage listeners to be aware as you start to see volatility emerge in some of these markets, uh, whether it's currency markets or, or stock markets or bond markets – you better have positioned a little bit of your money, diversified a few dollars into precious metals. That'll help that'll to help sort of alleviate some of the pain and balance out your total portfolio uh, as you move forward. So I got a chance to listen to this uh, financial advisor. He's a Bitcoin maximalist. His name is Tone Vase. I don't know if you've, you're familiar with him. But uh, Tone said that uh, he was talking about gold and silver in the relationship. And silver has been traditionally about a 17 uh, to one relationship with gold, gold being the one, like silver being the 17, and those being the ratio, uh, ratio being basically troy ounces. Um, 
But his says that uh, silver being at something like 85 to 1 now is because silver was always the currency of the poor people, the common people, and that kind of thing, whereas gold was the currency of the rich people. Gold still has value in uh, as a as a commodity, but silver is basically only used in jewelry and medical devices and these sorts of things now. And he doesn't believe it's ever coming back to that kind of uh, uh, relationship or anything near it. Can you comment? I, I wish I could fill in. I wish we had more time to fill in some of the gaps there because there's a couple of things that are, are – You just- have the time. Great. Well, let's start then with the ratio because the in-ground ratio is close to 17 to 1. So if you're a miner, that's relevant. When you're digging in the dirt, you're going to find um, 17 parts silver to one part gold. So that is true if you're talking about the Earth's crust. Now, how it's traded through time over the last 100 to 200 years, the average is closer to 31 to 1, Okay. Uh, not 17. And on the high side, it will get as high as 85 to 100 to 1. Currently, 90, 92 is the range right now. And that 85 to 100 is kind of the top end. If you're a value player, you look at the ratio getting that high, and silver is the cheaper of the two metals. Gold is the more expensive. So even though gold is not that expensive relative to stocks, for instance, if you're looking at just those two assets, silver is the better value today. Now, looking at the history of money and how gold and silver have changed through time, there's been arguments through time, metallism, bimetallism, do we use gold, do we use gold and silver? Um, you could even go back to the Wizard of Oz. This was um, a story arguing actually for the bimetallist gold-silver ratio, not just the gold ratio. This is a philosophical argument that goes back generations. The people who've wanted silver in the equation wanted the ability to inflate the money supply more to alleviate some of the financial and economic pressures from the poor in a certain period of time. And so – I. Listen, I'm, I'm not a bleeding art liberal, but I can appreciate how that would be nice if you're at the lowest end of, of the economic spectrum. Well, today it doesn't really matter. We don't have the metalist system where gold is, no. is, is front and center. We don't have the bimetallist system where gold and silver are, are present. What we have is a fiat system where there's nothing real backing our currency except a paper promise to pay and a lot of confidence. I would describe our current fiat system as the ultimate con game. But that's okay. People are still interested in it. People still have confidence in it. And so it continues. Um, I would look at gold and silver as assets that have their day in the sun again, contrary uh, to to Tone's comment. uh, They have their day again when things come under pressure. And I'll tell you, what has happened in the last six weeks illustrate this point perfectly. There is buying of gold over the last six weeks and not much buying of silver because it's caught what we call a safe haven bid. When you have people concerned about, let's say, the massive expansion of credit in China or potential trade wars going to the next level with China or the bombing of Iran and our implications of, of sort of a, a, you know, a third or, or fourth world war, you see conservative investors start to allocate towards safe havens. They'll buy U.S. treasuries, they'll buy German boons, and they'll buy gold. Guess what they don't buy when they're afraid? They don't buy silver, right? So, so silver gets left behind when the primary purchasing is, is what you call safe haven purchasing. But silver gets on the bandwagon at some point if there's ever a concern relating to inflation of the money supply. And I think you see that at a later stage. If we were to go to war, guess what we have to do? We've always printed more and more money when we go to war. 
Um, if if we end up in a trade war, you've already heard me quote Trump from a recent tweet this week where he said, look, I, I, I think these scoundrels overseas shouldn't be printing more money. It devalues their currency. And then he follows up his comment with saying, unless we devalue our currency, too, then it evens it out. Well, yeah, I mean, like he, he says it every single time he gets an opportunity. He's constantly badgering the Fed and. Um, you know, whether you call it stack in the deck or not, he's putting in his his people into the Fed as as, as any president would. Um, but he's badgering the Fed for uh, lower interest rates, lower interest rates, lower interest rates. Money is injected in the system through loans, and those loans come are based on the Federal Reserve's rate. And when there's a lower rate, there's more loans taken out. That means more money in, injected into the system. He's constantly asking for this. Right. I, I think I think this is, again, where if you look at the history of money and the history of markets, what you're really dealing with is human psychology. And so I would have to strongly disagree with Tone's comment there because nothing has changed. And innovation with blockchain does not change humanity. It does not change my tendency to either veer towards greed or fear. And these are the trends which define markets and pricing in the markets, whether it's stocks, bonds, real estate, Bitcoin, gold, silver, and gold and silver do very well under periods of uncertainty and fear. And I don't think that's going to change. I don't think that's going to change. Uh, maybe there are other aspects that make something like Bitcoin or Ethereum or, or other digital currencies attractive but but again, what is the underlying motivation? I mean, I can tell you this, that one of the big buyers in 2018 and here in the first half of 2019 of gold has been central banks. From 2017 to 2018, central bank buying was up 74%. In the first quarter of this year, relative to the first quarter of last year, central bank buying is up 68%. They're not loading the boat with Bitcoin. They're loading the boat with tons and tons and tons of gold. And I think one of the reasons they're doing so at record levels is because they too anticipate turmoil in the currency markets. They look at trade as just the tip of the iceberg of things that can go wrong in the financial landscape in the currency markets at this point. And look what they're not buying. They're not buying silver because central banks don't care about that. They're not buying Bitcoin because the central banks to this point have not cared about that. Silver is an investor play following on the heels of gold. It's like the caboose of the train. Gold turns the corner long before silver does, but ultimately silver plays catch up. And that's why I think that ratio becomes important because if gold begins to move, it allows, even though the train has left the station, it still allows investors to get on board because that's one that is still rolling down the tracks and might give it the opportunity to get on board. And I understand a person like you can't really give advice, but do you have any thoughts the difference between, say, buying – I know the terminology is junk silver. I don't like the terminology, but I like to buy um, mercury dimes. I think they're uh -huh. distinctive looking and they, they have a, a gravitas of their own just by looking at them. Um, uh, and I, I happen to like that, but I also have plenty of uh, silver bullion too. What do you think about the difference between these two? Well, so this is how I would stack the deck in my favor if I'm building a precious metals portfolio and a part of it has silver in it. So your quote unquote junk silver, these are your old pre-64, 1964 dimes, quarters, and 50 cent pieces where 90% of the physical content was silver. 10% was other junk. 90% is silver. And so you can look and say, all right, well, a $1,000 face value bag of junk silver, whether it's mercury dimes or regular dimes, a $1,000 face value has roughly 715 ounces of silver in it. 
715 ounces. This is a cheap way to buy silver, and because it hasn't been made since 1964. Remember I was talking about premium plays earlier? Yep. This would be a classic example where any time this 90% junk silver is selling close to just the basal value, just the silver content, if I can pay just a few percentage points above it, I'm going to load the boat with junk silver because there are points in the cycle where you have that stuff selling for 18, 20, even 35% premiums over the silver content. And that's when I'm happy to let someone else own it. And I take the free premium dollars and plow it into regular bullion that I essentially got for free. So allowing someone like us to help set up a portfolio that has that dynamic, you may start with, let's say you started with $10,000 and it bought you X amount of silver. Our goal with that portfolio of gold, silver, platinum is to see you grow your ounces. And then if the market ever accommodates and gives you a, a high commodity spot price for those ounces, great. But our goal is to help you grow the ounces. And junk silver is the perfect example of how you do that if you play what we call the bag to bar ratio. That's, again, where the, the premium on the bags of junk silver go up and you translate those premium dollars into free ounces in some other form, whether it's 10, 100, or 1,000 ounce bars. So you can go get your free portfolio review by one of their uh, you know, the professional advisors over there at uh, McIlvaney. Uh, ICA uh, at 800-525-9556. I think I have my own special number here, David, and that's the reason I'm giving it. 800-525-9556, or you can download a, a free report online at icagoldsilver.com. David McIlvaney, thank you so much. Mark, it's been a pleasure. icagoldsilver.com. Again, the telephone number is 800-525-9556. ICAGoldSilver.com, 800-525-9556, ICAGoldSilver.com. There are basically two types of advertising, direct response and branding. Radio is great for direct response with its low cost to listener ratio, but audio can't be beat for branding, which is a longer term endeavor. You want to be the first thing that someone thinks of when they think about your product or service. If you have a local business that you want kept top of mind in your community, call the station. If you need national reach, Free Talk Live's got around 200 radio stations, millions of monthly listening sessions, can suit all budgets, and if we don't think we're right for you, we'll tell you. Email me, mark at freetalklive.com.